Hello and welcome to episode 287 of The Crate and Crowbar. It is the 3rd of July 2019. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Francis. Hello. And John Roberts. Hi. Hi John, it's been ages. Yeah, it has. I am fit to burst with saved up witty <laughs> remarks and opinions. <laughs> Have you not been letting them sort of trickle out in bursts? No, I've been holding on to them. They're all horrendously <laughs> out of date and kind of gassy. Now. Okay, cool. Well, if you could just sort of, I mean, it would be, would you prefer to emit them in a single outburst <laughs> or like to have them slip out at intervals? Is uh, that what the honk honk was in the soundtrack? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pace myself. Uh, okay. Like fine wine. But like, <laughs> it's famous enough for its restraint. Yeah. Just refuses to be drunk for a real long time. Um, but, uh, we are not refusing to be drunk. <laughs> I'm having Fair. a little gin and tonic. Thank you, Tom. That's very cold, which is lovely on this balmy. Yeah. Wouldn't even say muggy <laughs> summer's Wednesday. Um, we talked about some news and obviously we missed a week last week. So, um, let's give the news time to pile up, which is good because <laughs> there ain't much of it. Um, so we should start with, um, something di- near to all of our hearts now, I think, which is Slay the Spire. John, have you yeah. slain it? Uh, yes. Cool. I cranked up 348. 3,048 poison damage, which puts me into some sort of league. Mm. <laughs> the Poisoners Olympics. Yes. Was this on a normal mode run? It was, yeah. Oh, so you get an achievement for that, don't you? Would you? Uh, no, I am sadly um, unremarked. Oh. Mm. It's, it's its own reward. <laughs> I'm poisoning something that thoroughly. Um, <laughs> See, I told you all my takes are old and musty. Yeah. It's terrible. Well, it's good because this is... You Relevant know, again. I think it cycles back. So the, the news here is simply that um, there's a fourth character coming if you're not aware a character in say the spire is, is functionally a new deck and play style yeah really um and it'll be free which is nice because the game is now out and you know hmm. is kind of thing you'd sell because it's the most obvious thing to add to the game that meaningfully yeah. expands it um they keep making these um uh wild promises and then sticking to them like good people <laughs> which is but you've got to take one part of the equation out <laughs> you can't both make generous promises and stick to them yeah right because they they're uh early access update schedule they actually over delivered on that because they said they were going to do updates throughout early access every two weeks and they forgot they said that and did it every week and thought they'd said every week <laughs> so for like <laughs> a year or more they were doing weekly updates when they didn't need to um but they also way way back when said that there would be more characters after launch and they would be free um but yeah it's cool that they're sticking to that they haven't um said much about this one at all right? no there's just that little gem at the bottom of the update post. Yeah. I'm, I, sorry? No, that's a gem. That's a gem. It's very <laughs> exciting. Um, I think it's the energy icon, right? Because every cast has its own energy icon. Yeah, right. Mm. And this one's a sort of, was it like a pink teardrop? It's like a, it's like a, hang on, I'll, I'll scroll down on this browser window. I'll have to turn around in order to do it. Live podcast action. Oh, where's my mouse? <laughs> on the wrong monitor. There it is. There we go. It's, I would say, an inverted teardrop or a yeah. flame, maybe, or, um, it's got a sort of thorny pattern around the outside, like a sort of vortexy thing. I don't I know, basically. wondered, there was something in the update post that made me think about whether it was fire-themed. I don't know where I got that from, but, um, which would be interesting. I, I want it to be like a new, I want a new mechanic that it revolves around. Yeah. And to be honest, that would be, uh, they're in a tough position because the mod scene is so good for Slay the Spire. Like, mm. there are so many fan-made characters that have really good concepts that you, where, I think there are more than, there's like two where I thought, oh yeah, this is obviously what you do for the next class. And they can't really do those now unless maybe they, you know. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how close to them they skirt. Because mm. I'm sure they have 
legal wording in place to say if you have a mod we can nick your ideas but obviously that's a bad taste for the community um but at the same time <laughs> yeah. the community takes all the good ideas and you have to put out something a bit <laughs> lackluster that's a bit crap yeah i wouldn't be surprised like if i mean a i think that they're smart enough they will come up with something that's probably better than <laughs> what anyone else has done uh and hasn't been done yet but also if they couldn't and they, there really was an idea in the community i just thought shit this is way better than anything we can do i wouldn't be surprised if they you know work with them in a mm. official capacity and bring yeah. it on board the one that I think my favorite of the, the player made classes is probably the slime bound. That doesn't feel like something they would necessarily do because a, I mean, there are so many of these player made classes where it's just like take an enemy from the game and now you're that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the slimes that you create in that are a lot like the orbs of the defect. It's, it's too similar to that to be a, a whole new th- official thing. Uh, but the one that really struck me as a sort of clever thing that slotted into the existing mechanics really well was the, uh, the cursed which is a character that's all based around curses and they have special cards that benefit from curses and mm-hmm. they, they have cards that generate curses and having it's still bad for them to have curses in their deck permanently usually like it's definitely risky because the, the curses still don't do anything and yeah they take up space in your hand but you can also benefit from them in these, in these really powerful ways i like curses as a mechanic actually um, mm. some of my favorite decks have ended up being built around getting some benefit from them and then trying to like find ways to become immune to them without having to get rid of them and yeah, yeah use them mm-hmm. it's, it's fun i think i love I, I think this is the first time it's ever happened to me but um there's often i often get this relic that negates the next two curses you get and i usually don't end up using it for anything it's just like it hangs around because there aren't yep. that many you don't usually control when you get curses and there isn't always an upside to it but just recently i had that and then at the next boss i got offered the red key which is the one that you get extra energy per turn, but the next two chests or every chest you open from then on has a, will give you a curse. Mm. Um, and that was at the end of act two. So I'm right. only going to open probably two more or three more at most. Um, and the curses have been negated. So I just took yeah. that. That's basically every energy. Yeah. It's good before you get, um, certain events as well where you can choose to like discard a card or take damage or gain a curse in order mm. to get some benefit and just being able to like, Get that for free. Oh, the game's so good. It's so good. We're slipping into Spire Wang, which is <laughs> when you simply just discuss things that are mechanically possible within that sandbox of things that are mechanically possible. But yeah. It is amazing. I'm still discovering new builds and ways to play to this day. Like yeah. this week, I've, I've had a few runs that are like, wow, I've never made this work before. I'm really aware that I've become hugely like, I get, I get like, into a rut of completely my own making of like, I'm convinced that this is the only way I will play this and then not become, and then getting back to the point where you feel adaptable again is gratifying. That's a good yeah. game. There's an amazing conversation going on today in our discord, um, about a thread on Reddit where someone is facing a boss, uh, is the awakened one who one of their traits is they can heal 10 health every turn. And this person has somehow, and for some reason exhausted their deck to the point that they only have two defends and an entrench, uh, all of which just give you block and don't attack at all. <laughs> um, but he has a, a relic that every time he gains block, it deals five damage to the enemy. <laughs> right. And so at most he can deal 15 damage, to the, which just about outpaces the 10 healthy gem. <laughs> but he's also got the Sneko eye curse thing where like the cost of every card is randomized oh, no. so every turn it could be too expensive you might only get to play one of them and only do five damage in which case the guy is gaining health or you might get to do 15 and then whittle him away um and he's got a sunflower that gives him one extra energy every three turns but the 
awakened has a void thing that he puts into your deck that drains your energy by one which he can do every two turns <laughs> <laughs> potentially but it's random and uh, so in the discord some people were figuring out the maths on this and like because he, he just played like a thousand turns literally a thousand turns taking four hours <laughs> and because he felt he observed that overall he was just about usually getting it a bit lower than it was healing itself um and yeah in the discord um people were figuring out the, the maths on it and it works out to he was averaging 10 point uh i think 10.8 uh damage per round like <laughs> and the guy's healing for 10 so he's doing 0.8 damage every turn <laughs> on a 300 health enemy that resurrects <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing like you can you can create a build that is fundamentally based around the process of natural erosion eventually <laughs> yeah. killing or at least removing whatever it is that was in front of you <laughs> Did either of you ever get to the fourth stage, like the late game and Yeah, I've reached the heart, but it was, I was nearly dead at that point and yeah. it absolutely thrashed me. And it's I thought, I'm never going to do this. <laughs> coin flip at that point. Either your build is massively overpowered or you just scrape by that last boss and you get pasted on the first step of stage four. But. The problem is I'm almost never playing on normal. I'm either playing the daily yeah. or I'm playing with uh, the custom mode with sealed deck. Mm. And if you're doing any kind of custom mode, none of the act four stuff is in the game, mm. um, which is kind of understand because they want to keep it special, but it just means I'll never see it basically. Yeah. And I feel like I'm not, not that advanced with it at the moment. Like I tend to have the issue of having, finding a way of playing that works really, really well. And then getting paced on the last boss, somewhat or the last boss feeling like a coin flip in and of itself like <laughs> certain bosses are fine and certain bosses are horrible and that that can feel a bit i think that's one of the only things in the game that can sometimes feel a bit feel a bit bad is mm. like not being able to i think one you know if i was to theorize one change it would be interesting if the array of encounters and, and bosses you hit on the way to the end hinted at what the last boss was going to be like alluded to it you can see way. once you get to act three you can see what the last boss is right if you scroll yeah. up the yeah you can but that's the thing is it sort of feels too late to pivot at that right. point or maybe it isn't too late to pivot and that's on me to learn but yeah because um, i always feel like the the total set of all the things you could possibly encounter is sort of the exam that your deck has to pass and so i'm right, always like yeah i mean yeah tell me the questions ahead of time because <laughs> <laughs> time eater is is the Whoops, your deck involves playing too many cards. <laughs> yeah, right. You failed. Yeah, and um, Resurrect Friend is the oops, you're too reliant on stacking up big loads of damage and then not doing anything else afterwards, <laughs> really. Yeah. Hmm. It's good, though. It's good. We keep saying it's good. We've been saying it's good for more than a year. It's good. <laughs> um, the other news is about... Um, also a card thing, sort of, I guess. Um, but when we last recorded the podcast, um, I was playing the version of Dota Underlords that you got access to if you had the international battle pass for Dota 2, etc. Um, it came out and it's been, by all accounts, a massive hit, which is interesting. It's hmm. interesting in the kind of like the saga of Valve's attempts to launch them a free servicey game where you make card decisions, basically. <laughs> Um, so it was like 200,000 concurrent players initially, and mm. it's hovering around 100,000 concurrents now, which is still very hale. Um, but yeah, it's kind of an interesting, uh, run because I, I was, um, I was kind of reflecting on it because I, for, for various reasons, um, dipped into Magic the Gathering Arena, which I hadn't played previously. So this is the new way of playing Magic the Gathering digitally. 
uh, there have been others um and this but this one is is from wizards of the coast themselves i don't know if the previous ones were and it's really tightly integrated with the tabletop game so you know it feels like a digital entry point to that hobby as a whole rather than an adaptation isn't necessarily synced up with it or something like that. In what way is it linked to the physical game? In the, I think expansions are released at the same time. Okay. So, um, you know, like there's a new set coming out soon, I think, and it will come yeah. out in stores. And, and similarly, like it's almost, I mean, it's not like a literal business model thing. It'd be amazing if you could get digital cards from your physical cards or something like that. Um, but it feels like they're putting loads of money into the esports scene, which is kind of also the tabletop scene. Mm. So, you know, digital competitions alongside paper competitions and things like that. Like it feels very integrated mm. and the theming and the feel of it is, um, uh, you know, really well done to make it feel like, uh, an entry point to this really big and very, you know, storied kind of scene, but rather than a spin off or an adaptation or something. Yeah. And it was interesting experimenting with that in the light of everything else that's happened. Cause obviously when that, I think, I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but when it was sort of, I think on the way up, it was around the same time the Artifact came out, but no, well, definitely, I was definitely a big, big, and I am a big fan of Artifact, and I am disappointed and fascinated by its failure to the point that Valve now have even said that they're kind of putting it on ice while they rethink it and hmm. things. Um, and one thing that really stood out to me about playing Magic is it does almost everything that Artifact refused to do <laughs> in terms of... um sort of the typical kind of progress mechanics and free-to-play stuff and retention stuff and progress bars. And it's pretty generous with that progress initially. So you're constantly un un unlocking decks and, you know, new ways to play and things, at least for the first couple of hours. And then you get into the expensive times if you want to compete, which is a problem it has. Like, it definitely has that problem. And um, uh, I think it makes for an interesting case study as the inverse of artifact in some ways Like you can't buy and sell cards from other players. So, which is a mechanic that artifact took from the way that magic really works in real life, where players are used to buying the cards they need for the deck rather than mm. relying on the random thing. Uh, there's a crafting system, but you know, probably wouldn't be the primary way, you know, there's luck is a big factor in, in what you can build. Um, there are some things that are interesting ideas that kind of assuage it, which is like, Every 10 packs you open, you get a token that you can redeem for any card of a particular rarity. And so there are common tokens, you know, rare tokens, legendary tokens. And so that means if you get a legendary token, you can then just pick which legendary you want and you can have it, which is a really nice idea. But that, you know, but it's, that is still only a sort of a bandaid on the problem of, you know, the, the vast investment, but it feels so much friendlier to kind of plug yourself into that particular series of loops and XP bars and, uh, unlock trees and things like that compared to the artifact method of this is um fair simply because marketplaces are fair and it is fun because marketplaces are fun and i'm <laughs> wrong about the second part of that <laughs> like yeah. you know what you know and what kids love stock markets that's the mistake <laughs> they made with counter-strike years and years back um they experimented with uh a counter-strike weapons market which was not what they have today which is like selling skins and stuff but um in game, the prices of all weapons, the, of, you know, the in game money that you get for competing rounds and stuff, uh, would dynamically adjust based on demand 
like there was basically like yeah the free market's good let's put that into the game and it failed catastrophically for uh i have to say the reason i predicted in pc game <laughs> at the time which was people just like certain they just like the deagle and they like the ak <laughs> and they're going to keep buying it until they physically can't <laughs> and yeah, they did right. so the price of of just the regular m4 was like four thousand or something and or it was like way more expensive than than outright better guns because people just like it they just want it because it's good mm, yeah. and fun and nice and now now they can't have it because of the weapons <laughs> actors in a video game marketplace often irrational <laughs> valve yeah. discovers to peril I mean, that, yeah <laughs> and that that also feels like what happened with the the summer sale thing where there was a, a sort of problem where people were deleting games from their wish list in the summer sale because there was a, a promotion where you could win something on your wish list so people were taking the indie games off because they're cheap and keeping on the the triple a games and actually really fundamentally the way that the sale worked didn't incentivize that as long as everybody understood it perfectly and everybody acts in a rational way let <laughs> <laughs> this just keep happening like the like this is the thing i find really fascinating about the situation because um I th- there's a lot to really like about magic arena actually i really like uh, it's become something i boot up every now and then to play a game of when i'm stressed out like it's it's it's, it's fun um but I, I you know i am on guard in a really particular way to its temptations and you know and that of that kind of game um uh, it's really nicely presented for one thing it looks really lovely and one thing that occurred to me is the artifact looked beautiful as well like artifact is a really beautifully rendered game mm. for for particularly what it's doing uh it did as much as and and you know i feel for the the person or people who did the really phenomenal animation of like the imps in artifact that do so much to draw your attention to particular things like mm. which which feels like again that sort of really elegant like everyone's going to get what we did here we found a way that doesn't need a little um you know, it doesn't need a, a, a in-your-face tutorial. We can we can do everything with sort of um, like it feels artifact feels like a game, and I don't mean this a bad way about other games like this, but it feels like a game that thinks very highly of its audience in some ways. Like people will understand the logic behind this marketplace, and they will be able to play three games of cards at the same time <laughs> against one other op- opponent, and that won't be scary or intimidating, you know, and so on and so on and so on. And it's interesting then comparing that to the success of Underlords. Like, I don't know if we mentioned this last time, but the kind of, uh, the thing that completes this circle is that Underlords is a really fascinating game because it's about making sort of pretty simple decisions in the moment on your own with the capacity to then make some broader, longer term, high skill cap sort of decision making if you want to. But you can have fun just by building your little uh, hero squad. And uh, there's a really, I don't know if the podcast can hear this. I think there's someone in our bushes. <laughs> it's Marsh. He's returned. It might be Pip. Um, the, um, the, um, you can, um, uh, you know, you can play it really straightforwardly. And in that sense, it's also the opposite of Artifact. And between these two poles, like Underlords, I've been playing Underlords as well. It's fun. Um, and magic, you get these two poles of like things people actually like, which is like easy progression systems and, um, and simple decision making that's really immediate not too much to think about magic probably that's probably a flaw of magic is it does probably have too much to think about like i remember really vividly the experience in that game of escaping the kind of beginner's queue into the wilds of money geddon you know what i mean where mm. it's like i can't you know that is a that is a game with 20 years of systemic complexity um you just walking 30 years actually self-perpetuating fireball and it just evaporates you yeah right there's a really good um you know there's that that old it is that game where you you sit for 15 minutes as someone elaborately sets up a combo mm. beyond the complete well, they're playing slay the spire basically at that point yeah. but that's maybe to loop back to the beginning that slay the spire is great 
um, great innovation is taking you all the satisfaction of building a combo um, with cards and particular mechanics and the depth of mechanics, but removing it from a situation where you have to explain this to someone opposite you <laughs> whose day you're actively ruining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, but yeah, it's just, uh, I find, I still find the whole situation fascinating. And, and, but nonetheless, it's not interesting because the success of Underlords probably means that I don't know, it, as them, I don't know how you justify the ongoing investment in Artifact. If that makes sense, because Underlords, the thing I was going to say, Underlords' presentation is kind of naff. It's Dota assets and characters, and they're, they're nice, but they had them. All the new stuff is super basic. It feels like that game is fast to make. Do, do, oh, you yeah. know, do we know when it started? Or? I, mean, I mean, it can't take Not them before long. Auto like, Chess, right? Well, they have the tools, like it could, the entire thing could and was made in the Dota custom game creator which mm. valve made so they had all the tools they owned all the assets all they created was a like the theme for underlords i don't know if i mentioned this last time it's like dota crime i don't know if that was clear like <laughs> no, you're like, like un- <laughs> underlords are like mob bosses like fantasy mob bosses and so you know basically it's a series of fights in a series of fantasy car parks that is <laughs> like that is all it there is nine sacred like, car parks the yard like every person ha- arranges their troops on their little battlefield but the battlefield is just like an alleyway like a, a yard between two <laughs> fantasy car parks i guess well, and the main game is lanes so i guess it's not much more exotic <laughs> right yeah but like well, at least it's forests and ruins and things whereas this yeah. is very much like the back to the mean back streets am i right in thinking that the the auto chess the mod uh the nine different battles that were happening were all on the same map like yes. it's all in one contiguous yeah place. it's just the, where the camera was right um uh, that's not the case here but that, i think that was a necessity of making that in the dota engine basically and now they can just do it as you know, you can yeah. click around, see different parts of it. It might be done like that, but you can't like pan around to see yeah. what's happening in different alleyways. I, I clicked on someone else's battle in Underlords and I never got back. <laughs> it just became completely baffling as to what, what the hell is going on. What, what am I seeing now? I, I is tell you what, I tell the what's units at the bottom, are they my units or their units? And then also the game, I think, bugged out because I literally couldn't carry on with my game after that. <laughs> yeah, when you click on someone, you become them from, <laughs> from a perspective a point of view. You see the game exactly as they see it. So it's if you click on someone who is fighting your units... You see yourself as the enemy. It's profoundly empathizing, you know. It's, and also it's, now you're a robot and you don't own the game. And <laughs> yeah. You, actually, I'd forgotten. Uh, you've played it now. Tom. Yeah. Have I you played it, John? Nope. I played it on iPad, which is uh, kind of a wild experience. Like on an iPad, see the Valve logo and the, the dong hmm. and all that stuff. You saw the Valve dong on your yeah, iPad? Yeah, the Valve dong happened on my <laughs> iPad. Because, um, yeah, this is Valve's first mobile game as far as I know. And uh, the other weird thing was realizing like, oh, this is not like I'm playing a Valve game, but it doesn't know I'm me. You know, like I'm not. Yeah. This isn't linked to my Steam account. I do actually have the Steam app, but it's not like set up to. Uh, it didn't ask me for any credentials or anything. I'm just a totally anonymous player. So if I make any progress in this, presumably like, it won't carry on if I play no, on Steam. Yeah. But yeah, I've never got through a game yet um, <laughs> because it crashes at some point. And games take a long fucking time. Like they I've do, got yeah. twenty to thirty minutes into a game, but that's not enough to complete. They're like forty minutes. Matches are. A long commitment, which, like, yeah. I will say, I'm playing as AI because I just want to learn how the game works and stuff. Um, and it does have one up on, on Hearthstone on this, uh, where Hearthstone, I never got through the tutorial because it, not because it was crashing, but just because at some point I'd like run out of battery because it eats battery like crazy. Um, or I just need to like minimize it for a second, go do something else. And it, that, anything that interrupts it at all disconnects you from the server and you lose all progress through the tutorial, which again was like 20 minutes of, stuff so i'm just never going to get through it because uh but underlords if you're playing against ai then you can leave your game and just resume it later like it's just all oh, cool. held and saved 
That's good. How do you find it? I guess I haven't played it guess, uh, at all. I've only ever played it. I mean, I was playing the cool. tutorial, and the tutorial ends in a kind of like, and now just carry on with this match. Um, and I was, I think I had like ninety five health, and there was a bot that had ninety eight health, and everyone else was kind of lower than that. Yeah. But that was after, as I say, like twenty five minutes, and I was like, how is this ever going to end? <laughs> like, you know, if I was the only one with a lot of health, then okay, I'm going to win pretty soon. But when it's like this person has more health than me, and I'm, I'm nowhere near dying. I guess it, the pace, does the pace kind of... It escalates really fast. Because yeah. once the worst players are out, I guess you're more often fighting the... Also, damage amounts go up enormously. Right. So the amount of damage you do when you win is based on who survives and what level they were. I so see. if you steamroll, like at the start, if you win, you could do like one damage to the amount of 100. Whereas later in the game, if you win handily with like a pretty close to max level squad, you will do somewhere between 20 and 30 damage. Right. So it's like suddenly it's like three moves from done. Hmm. You know, and like... It can, it can drag, but like, if two people are really evenly matched and they're only managing to get three or four damage, then it's actually quite tense, but it can become a situation where it's just like, you know, suddenly it's two rounds and it's over. Like. It's got a really interesting dynamic. Uh, it's quite a small thing, but just a nice idea that I haven't heard before where the rounds against NPCs where you just get some loot. Um, if you win them, you choose between three things. And if you, I think you mentioned this last time, uh, if you lose, you just get one of those things yeah. that's chosen for you. That's a really interesting like dichotomy because it's not too punishing if you fuck it up like you know the thing i'm always worried about in games is snowballing where like yeah failing a little bit i fail a lot and then it gets harder for the people who are finding it hardest and this is like i think it pretty much avoids it it's like you get something they're they're roughly equal value or um none of them are terrible and you just don't get the choice that's kind of interesting yeah the other thing i find interesting this is uh, my my understanding of it has improved a lot since when i spoke about it on the podcast last time um my win rate has improved a lot as well and one thing that's really, really key is how is managing money. And, um, because, um, interest is a thing. So if you get at the end of, you basically when a round begins, the game logs how much money you had at that point. And from f- intervals of initially five and then 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 gold, you get an extra gold huh. for each of those things. So if you have 50 gold unspent, you'll get an extra five at the end of the next round. Hmm. And then this compounds with, win streaks and lose streaks, which are valued the same way. So it is as good to be on a winning streak oh, yeah. as a losing streak. Um, and so what is bad is changing because that resets <laughs> your account. So it's like, you know, you go up to, I think it's up to a maximum of three extra gold. For God's uh, sake, don't start winning. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's actually a really interesting mechanism because if you, depending on, you know, if you get like a really strong initial draw and you're obviously like doing quite well and early, like you can snowball really hard. And then that means you just keep the win streak going. And then it's a really interesting game of how much do I want to spend to keep this win streak going versus how much do I want to keep back to keep the insurance going? Cause, sorry, keep the interest going. Cause what mm. you want is to maintain your interest. And then, cause that allows you to snowball more. And then there's the interesting dynamic of when do you cash it all in? Like what point do you go for the win? Basically, like I've got 50 saved up. I'm going to power level myself up, upgrade everybody, that kind of thing. Because also you're seeing like what's in the shop is random and the the value of that to you is very different round to round. Like yeah. one time there's something you really need in it. So Right. And so do you spend down? Do you sell something you've been holding on to to get yourself back over the next interest threshold? That kind of thing. But the really interesting one is when it goes badly early on. And early on, like we've said, you can't take that much damage. So you're not out. And I figured that that's how you win is you, you try and find out how to keep losing, but only just. So you keep <laughs> taking minimal amounts of damage. And that can mean deliberately putting suboptimal builds together, <laughs> like holding your best stuff back for a round just to make sure I need to lose this one and hoping you don't you lose can too actually, much. You can field less than a full team, can't you? Yep. You can just swap in minimum unupgraded heroes as well. <laughs> and then 
if like that's really hard to pull off but if you can pull it off that leaves you with loads of money to then invest in specifically beating whoever's winning like that, which is kind of clever the hardest thing about fielding a non-full team would be the psst noise that they make just fucking constantly just yeah. every 1.2 seconds go psst psst yeah like, i'm fucking you can see i'm dragging someone to the field right now can you <laughs> shut up for a second <laughs> you can, yeah exactly they they didn't want to do beautifully animated imps that elegantly point <laughs> to things again so they just have characters wave and go oi basically <laughs> Yeah. How do you feel about the randomness now that you've played it more? This is the game where you can field the same people against the same enemy and get different outcomes. Yeah, and you kind of have to accept that as like a dice game. Yeah. And I think, you know, I I think it, I think it does hurt it. Like, hmm. I feel like this is the thing, and this is what's sort of almost heartbreaking about the artifact situation. The reason I loved artifact is, even though things can be really tough, the fact that you're playing three games of cards across three different tables basically meant and there were so many different strands of randomness including hero respawn times and and things like that i always felt like there was something i could genuinely control and losses were crippling because they were me i i fucked it up and and wins were amazing because i pulled it out the bag and sometimes things, things could be frustrating but like most great competitive games like dota itself actually it would come down to like this was on us mm. and on the decisions i made or we made whether it's a team thing or not um, Underlords has the kind of happy spin the wheel kind of feeling of like, maybe I'll win this time. And like, you know, I was like, so, and as a result, neither winning nor losing feels as strong as it could. Mm. Like losing can just be like, oh, well, you know, like I don't mind quitting mid game. Like if I play, I'll play it for 20 minutes sometimes and get into it halfway through a round, just get bored and quit. Cause it's like, well, I'm not engaged by this really. It's not a particularly interesting round. So fuck it. Bye. And, um, and the, and then, you know, I had a win, last week where i had my first flawless win like where i didn't lose any health whatsoever managed to keep the streak going for the entire time and that felt like yeah i did it but i also knew i got real lucky early on <laughs> because i got like specific kinds of heroes that are specifically good early and managed to upgrade them and then stayed ahead long enough to build a pretty solid combo and no one could do anything about it and you know I, it's like at that point there are so many different aspects of luck that I ceased to be able to claim any ownership over it, really. But it was fun. Do you think but it was like, yeah, too much luck involved to uh, transition into a real kind of pro scene? I suspect it's possible to be really good at it. I suspect mm. it's possible to, like, poker or, you know, any other... I, know. I think it would be interesting... It would be really interesting to see what pro players could do with it because the thing I don't do is click a lot on other players to see what they're doing. Mm. I feel like that's where, the, not, where, that where you can probably start to conquer the luck level, which would be you're actually playing everyone's game at the same time and trying to figure out how to win it while they're all doing the same thing. It potentially be amazing. How the fuck you communicate that to a viewing audience, I have no <laughs> idea. Because it's not just one person's perspective. It's everyone's perspective times eight. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think the AI that was viewing it mm. in a kind of, you know, AI multiple strands kind of way would be really having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> It would be a great sort of post-singularity sport. Go <laughs> <laughs> um, to overlords. Yeah. <laughs> I for one. Um, yeah. Basically. Hmm. <laughs> um, John, what have you been playing? Whisk us away from the oh, car God. parks of fantasy. Oh, <laughs> uh, there's a, uh, a relatively new... Uh, computer RPG, isometric, fantasy-based, so I bought it and played it, obviously. <laughs> uh, it's called Pathfinder Kingmaker. Uh, it came out 
uh, Christmas last year and was a Kickstarter before that, I think. Uh, and it's in the unfortunate position of being a love letter, uh, like a deeply respectful uh, ode to past games, which it has to compete against because they're all enhanced editions and being re-released. <laughs> mm. Uh, so it owes a tremendous, um, debt to things like Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale. And it's definitely riding or tried to ride that Kickstarter wave of, um, pillars and yeah. Yeah. Like if this got in before pillars, it would have been, uh, much higher profile. Um, it uses the Pathfinder role playing system, uh, which is branched off from D and D. Way back in the mists of 3.5, I think, which mm. is, in terms of computer games, is Icewind Dale 2. <laughs> so it's like a 10-year-old rule system, which has had uh, 10 years of open source development. So anyone and everyone throwing stuff at it to see what sticks, um, which leads to... Uh, so you'll be familiar with most of the basic mechanics, like you have fighters and wizards and so on. They have spells. It's play and pause. Uh, so you queue up some actions and then your tanks roll off and start hitting stuff and uh, you start casting your spells and so on. Uh, but to get to that, you have to go through character creation. And that's a problem because there is absolutely no help for you whatsoever. <laughs> uh, it's... Uh, like all the old games, it's entirely front loaded. You just make a character and then trundle off into the wilderness. And, uh, in Pathfinder, that means choosing from one of, I think in the game are 15 classes, uh, each of which is, uh, kind of nails the main archetypes like fighter or wizard or ranger, and then lots of different things in between. And then lots of, uh, extra special, special Pathfinder stuff that they've added, like alchemists and mystics and things like that. Uh, each of those classes has four cl- subclasses. And to find out what any of these things do, you're going to have to read a lot of text. And if you're not familiar with RPG mechanics at all, it's all going to be entirely meaningless. Uh, you're going to have to check all the individual powers, which most of the core features are about four paragraphs long. So you're looking at big old walls of stuff. Uh, you'll then have to make uh, game-changing decisions like what weapon is your fighter specialized in? And that, uh, is a list of about 65. <laughs> and it doesn't tell you the difference between any of them. In what like, is one okay, of the- Sword, axe, mace. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. Not cranular enough. Long sword, short sword. Long sword, short sword is just the start. Bastard sword. Have you heard of Left Falchions? Yeah. And, uh, uh, I think they have, uh, the French, uh, main gauche as well. I think oh my gosh. for five, John. Uh, <laughs> if you're skilled with a fashion, does that, does that not extend to a scimitar? <laughs> unfortunately not. Uh, what is this? You have to make your choice. Uh, this choice can also involve bite attacks, <laughs> which I don't think it's possible for any class to actually have. Uh, it's just. Do you specialize in biting? Oh, you can. You can just never do it. <laughs> In theory, I could bite you real good if that was an option, but it's not. I just want to portray themselves to bite real good. I mean, that's not, that's irrelevant, but you know. And I face paint. Maybe just, you know, it's the kind of thing you say after a few pints in a fantasy bar. And then that's the start of a good 
campaign, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's the rules really kind of bog it down a lot. Um, the combats are uh, kind of slogs, mostly, um, where you'll have to be studying the uh, the combat log to find out um, if you're doing enough damage. Like maybe the thing that you're hitting mm. is resistant to the type of weapon you have, and that means you have to. So I specialised in falcons. <laughs> like, oh no, this one's immune to biting. It's <laughs> wasted. Um, and the uh, the Pathfinder world itself is a little odd for being an offshoot of D and D. Like D and D is such for me at least. Uh, I'm not sure how widespread it is, but it's such a kind of baseline fantasy thing. Yeah. If you see uh, a troll, that means that, uh, you know you're probably going to have to kill it with fire or acid because that's how trolls work. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you gave me a look there. No, I was just thinking about that. <laughs> like, I, I, was, I, I went to we a faraway, I went to a faraway kind of happy fantasy place. Yeah. Where I was like, yeah, just talk to me about trolls. And there's uh, stuff like that, which is just a straight lift from uh, D&D, but there's also stuff they've taken from D&D and then just swapped all the names around for various legal reasons. So uh, you'll, yeah, fight weird gremlins and it's like, I don't know what these are. are these goblins or kobolds? And everything's shifted slightly to just put you off uh, I think I've never played a Pathfinder campaign, so I don't know how uh, deep into it people get. Um, I think I think Pathfinder itself has loads of spin-offs now. As yeah, well. I think it's reasonably popular. Uh, yeah, I think if you like Pathfinder, there's I think a lot of the companions and stuff I recognise from the key art. So maybe it's a chance for you to adventure with pictures that you like. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Do you get to build your own king? I see what you've done there. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, first, you have to build your own baron. Uh, the and three barons merged. <laughs> <laughs> the thrust of the game is that um, uh, the legal provinces in this area are retaking uh, 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 lands that have been lost to a bandit king and they're hiring... Uh, adventurers do that for them with the promise that whoever does it will get to be barren and rule over that land. Hmm. And so they send you off into the wilderness and uh, it's like a good old classic uh, kind of low-level uh, D&D romp where you're uh, adventuring through uh, forest paths and there's random encounters and you fight bandits and big frogs and stuff like that. Uh, and that first act is quite fun. Um you have a fair amount of choice in uh, the characters that join your party. Uh, you get some evil people and some good people, and they occasionally have a line of dialogue that uh, makes you twitch a little, though they're <laughs> quite rare. Um, it's a bit dry. So a good on the twitch whole. or a bad twitch? I was thinking like mouth, like corner of the mouth. Twitch. Oh, like yeah, I guess it's smoke. <laughs> but, I mean, feel free to twitch whatever you like. <laughs> yeah. so, um. And then the bad thing happens, at least for me, uh, where chapter two begins. You have defeated the bandit lord in the region, and now it's time for homework. <laughs> you have successfully uh, dominated the lands, and you've been ever elevated to the rank of baron, uh, which means that you now have to read all the boring political fantasy that this game can throw at you. Uh, it suddenly becomes... I just couldn't stop imagining, like bored Conan on his throne. 
Right, yeah. Like, he slaughtered his way <laughs> to rule, and now he's deeply upset with what the life of a king actually is. It's a, it okay, to lead, not read. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, it's interesting how many fantasy settings, you know, mentioned Conan, I think, do manage to encapsulate the particular experience of entering a creative industry <laughs> and becoming a manager. You know what I mean? That there's no role advancement yeah. path of him, what you're good at, but there is towards editing or managing. A Real good. Else. So good at killing stuff with swords, kept getting promoted. And now I have to manage the Smiths yeah. and the low level adventurers. And God, someone's talking about taxing the swords now. And I have to assign an advisor to oversee coal production. Uh, would you tax biting? It's impossible to know. <laughs> Can we do it? It's you got um, Peter principled onto the Iron Throne. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, this all comes with the caveat that you can just set this uh, the management systems to automatic and just cut them all out entirely. But I think that's kind of a missed opportunity. Um, well, like Pillars has like a fairly big like estate management right thing um, that it kicks into. It's definitely a thing in these sorts of games. Um. This is just dull and tedious, and a lot of the time, the decisions it's asking you to make uh, won't resolve for hours and hours of game time, by which you've entirely forgotten what stakes were involved or what uh, path you chose or anything like that. Um, so yeah, you bundle off your throne and go and desperately find whatever big frogs you didn't kill on the first time through. <laughs> so yeah, is there more adventure at that point, or is it really... Uh, there is. There's uh, kind of a blend of it. You have your uh, kingdom management stuff throws up larger quests, which uh, the Baron themselves has to go off to uh, solve. Uh, but you've probably got some stuff left over from Act 1, and maybe there's a corner of the wilderness that you didn't explore, so you can just uh, trundle off uh, and lose yourself in that for a while. It's got a few ideas of its own apart from that, which is where it starts... Uh, to shine a little like resting in uh, D&D games like making camp stuff I think has never really been looked at too much and they've done a few bits and pieces here like uh, when you're in a map when you're done killing stuff and you need to recharge and heal up uh, you can just click on camp and then you get a little 3D camp that you oh, can cool. plop down anywhere on the map so it's up to you to kind of find a nice spot to put it. Like you can think about avenues of approach and tuck it away in a little corner. Uh, and once you do so, uh, a little dialogue pops up where you can uh, do fun stuff like uh, sign your party members to uh, things like hunting and cooking, uh, disguising the camp, keeping watches uh, or some uh, other various uh special stuff like uh your kind of evil wizardess necromancer uh can raise skeleton sentries which is a, a fun touch um wait sentries <laughs> i'm picturing skeleton sentry guns <laughs> if it's not that you've got to tell me uh no skeletons pop up okay they're just, skeletons now they're just sentries in, in t terms of like a job role <laughs> yes <laughs> they might be doing biting <laughs> um and this is great except for uh the hundred times after the first time really <laughs> uh where you've encountered a kind of puzzly fight uh like i have uh where uh the things i'm fighting are uh deal almost entirely electrical damage and they have absurdly high armor class so like 
the puzzle there is fairly easy to resolve. It means going through all your equipment, uh, all your potions, picking out all the electrical resistance stuff, going through all your character spells and so on, uh, selecting stuff which uh, bypass armor class and so on. And then it's got that problem of you solved the puzzle, but now implementing it is tedious and mm. boring, uh, which is uh, a little unfortunate. It's not... Can't hold a candle to the kind of inventive combat scenarios that you run across in uh, Divinity Original Sin 2. Yeah. Where they just go nuts. And I still remember some of the stuff uh, that they make you do in that. Like there's there's the bit where you're swarmed on all sides by like weird blobs of sentient oil and they leave trails and when you kill them, they explode. And just as you uh, take a breather and the last one goes down, suddenly the fire elementals turn up. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, and that's great. And uh, you st suddenly start having to think about uh, your abilities in different ways because some of them clear will clear away oil from the ground and put out fires and stuff like that. It's not like, oh, God, I have to read 100 spells <laughs> and check their keywords for if they are a ranged touch attack or if they target dexterity saves or something mm. like that Is that the kind of school of like maximalist game design where it just has everything and it has a million of everything is weird to, it's so foreign to me because i've never really been into i've never really been the target audience for it and then now from a development side it's like that's also a huge pain in the ass to make <laughs> like that kind of complexity it has endless costs like everything that you add you know makes everything else more complicated and creates all these edge cases and difficulties and it's just content you've got to make. Yeah. And so it's it's wild that they do that. And then also it hurts the game. <laughs> it's interesting because I think the thing that Divinity was so successful at was creating the feeling of playing a tabletop role-playing game through that kind of mm. bonkers encounter mm. design and systemic stuff. Because I don't... Well, I think they probably exist, but I've never been part of a tabletop role-playing game where efficiency was really the goal. Yeah. <laughs> like, in terms of, like, we are going to get this right, and then the DM or whoever looks up and says, yes, you've certainly <laughs> mathematically solved this, right? Like, or, you know, you say, yes, you're definitely doing 0.8 damage every round. <laughs> so we'll account for the law of averages, and we'll just, we'll we'll say time advances four hours, and you've won. Yeah. Great. Clap, 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 clap. Everyone feels good about themselves. Like, that doesn't really happen. Everything is like, I'm going to do something cheeky or something unexpected, or, or be, yeah. you know, I want to be pushed into this, like, you know, Creative After position. The, the first hour or the first couple of nights in your expedition into the wild where you're managing your camp and checking your rations and things like that, everyone just lets that kind of slide away because otherwise it's incredibly tedious to go back yeah. to it time and time again. Yeah, it's funny. Like I think about this a lot when running tabletop games. Like There's value in exposing people to the full mechanical complexity of a situation once mm. so they know what it feels like so that they can then imagine it when you elide it mm. slightly every subsequent time currently doing something very like that in my ongoing star wars pen and paper campaign um just exposing someone to like the full dice complexity of a space battle so that future <laughs> situations could be less complicated games can't really do that i think but I yeah i always wondered if like in a game like galsiv or, or civilization you could have uh i guess galsiv and games where and maybe total war where you have like a strategy map and then you have a tactical mm. actual like a battle system whether it would ever be viable to allow your auto resolve to be calibrated to your proven skill level in hmm. like if yeah. you've played enough battles and you've shown you're this good we just set you to, okay you have the auto resolve that's like six out of ten or seven out of ten and then 
uh, for obviously you never have the same fight twice, but we've learned a battle that we expected you to lose by, you know, uh, this amount. You actually won by this amount. So we're just going to say your auto resolve is that good. It's just a bit better. It won't win everything, but you know, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Answer. I do. I mean, it's fantasy the, GCSEs. <laughs> You'd need get it right, or you're well, cursed always for the rest the of exams. your career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to have some kind of guard against, like, you take on your first fight against three rats, and you absolutely own them, and then you never play another battle in for real ever <laughs> yeah. again because your record is amazing at the moment. Like, maybe it gets used up or something. Like each auto resolve you do, your rating goes down a little bit. Or it could so be enemy specific. Point, it could be enemy specific, so you're encouraged to actually play yeah. the battle against new mm. characters once you've proven you can do it. I think, I think it's an, an interesting one because I think, you know, we talk about the challenge of adapting sort of, uh, managed experiences, basically DM'd or, or GM'd roleplay experiences to computer games, all the challenges inherent in that. And often when we talk about that, the quality that you draw out from a pen and paper game is the responsiveness to the GM. Like it's a big part of like dialogue writing and so on where in a game people desperately would love to create the effect that it has when you're actually improvising, but mm. games are, games I really struggle to be improvisational in, in, in any way. Um, but I think one thing that's actually not actually ever brought up enough in the light of video games is the other thing video games can't do, which is dynamically manage their systemic complexity to suit the needs of the story and the players, <laughs> which is like most of GMing. It's like yeah. some of it is being able to do character dialogue on the fly, and the other is knowing exactly when to switch a mechanic off. Yeah. Not, uh, you know, not, not, not to the extent of fudging dice rolls and things, like, but every, every, you know, I know you run campaigns, John, like, Everybody, everyone who runs these kinds of campaigns has their own attitude to how you flex everything because everything mm. is there is malleable and traditionally in games, the rules simply aren't. And that's kind of interesting, you know, in terms of uh, these systems for games like Pathfinder or, or Wilder's Gate being so vast and complex. The, the reason they have to be vast and complex is because they have to present the totality of the rules as they are, as they are, mm. you know, it's like that vast sort of, too many rules thing is how most tabletop role playing games start in with the tacit understanding that every single person who plays them picks and chooses which parts they find important and what they want to use for their yeah. games and that is just not something that video games typically support but is to their huge detriment that it's like you can you know difficulty settings maybe a really simplistic version of this yeah but like you know that like, that's the problem where it kind of requires prior knowledge and about what systems you're getting into like yeah if you play a RPG for 10 hours and entirely forget to level up one of your companions. Like if this was, if there was a DM watching, they'd turn on auto leveling. Yeah. Or make some decisions for you or or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, you know, learn that, um, you know, we, we do like, I give you, I can give you an example. Like, um, I, I tend to use fairly, fairly strict rules for like table talk. So in a sci-fi setting, in a space setting, that mean that means that switching on communicators and radios and talking to people who aren't next to you is something you have to think about doing. It's not necessarily an action, doesn't actually consume much by way of timing. But I have to say beep. Yeah, <laughs> quite a lot. There's yeah. a lot of like people I've got managed to get people to the point where they will instinctively mime pressing the com button. <laughs> um but like you know, you have to have some kind of answer to that. Like there's something you need a little point of friction there. And so we get kind of used to that, but you flex it up and down a mm. little bit to make sure that it feels right. You know, cause it feels wrong to have people who are all just talking to each other as if they're in the same place, if they're all in different spaceships or something like that. But it feels tedious to then say, I take the communicate action. I speak <laughs> to my friend over here. Like, and 
But if you were to try and implement a system like that into a video game for all of the same benefits in terms of feel, you could only do it in its most pedantic sense. Mm. And without the intelligent, like, you guys were talking to each other last turn, so we'll just roll that back along. We won't worry about that quite so much. Like, all of that kind of design-on-the-fly stuff that's involved in, in role-playing. I don't know yeah. how you would ever do that in a video game. I don't think you can, to be honest. I think you have. I think the best it's been done is things like Numenera, where they just offer you a lot of options, and you can kind of yeah. slide into whatever uh, you fancy at that point. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think you just... I don't know if it's just giving up, but feeling like giving, just accepting that you can never have that kind of responsiveness or malleability and just instead turning entirely opposite way and drilling down on the mechanized systems that you can right, yeah. implement uh, exactly. Um, but I think, I think maybe that's one of the interesting things about these games as adaptations of that experience, which they very much explicitly are. Like they mm. literally take those rules is like, but they, they take exactly the same rule set and create, at least in my experience, a tremendously different experience because yeah. it's like, the video games are, do you want to play all of D&D? Mm. Do you want to literally play every single part of D&D, yeah. like third edition or 3.5, like you said? Like, and it's like, no, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I don't know. I'm interested to know if people run groups that are more like that in their home games or in their real tabletop games where it's like, yeah, what we do is we play every part of D&D mm. and that's what we're into. And the DM's job is more to say like, there are 11 goblins. <laughs> Two of them have falchions. One of them has a bastard sword some of them look like they might bite uh solve this problem yeah and then everyone sits down and does their maths homework and then a solution is arrived at which could be interesting like they're interesting systems but yeah it, yeah i just i'm delighting that i've managed to derail this entirely into a tabletop rpg <laughs> i think it's hard to find uh a dm which is i think an inherit inheritively creative role that would just sit there and run monsters yeah, without wanting to throw something in. Yeah. Like, without, like, well, but actually it's not a falcon, it's a saber. <laughs> <laughs> this one's specialised in biting, you're fucked now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All DMs sound like that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm, yeah, it's interesting though. But yeah, that's how... That, I can that, sort of see that being a role some people would want to take, where you want to get, like, not everyone who who is super interested in, in fantasy and, and systems and stuff is uh wants to sort of creatively control the thing mm. like you know because there are campaigns where you just follow the rule book right you're just given a book that says what mm. happens and yeah. then all you have to do is the, kind of the bookkeeping part of it um and uh there's a lot of like pressure in having to make things up and improvise and be creative and there are probably a lot of people who just don't want to do that and just but like they're happy to run the 11 goblins and do all the initiative yeah. stuff for them but they don't want to have to make up what happens if you try and talk to the goblins <laughs> yeah I, I mean i guess uh wizards of the coast have pumped out successful campaign books again and again and again there must be a yeah. market for that yeah yeah maybe we're missing something but but nonetheless i think it does explain that helps me kind of uh, it kind of articulate at least in my for myself like what that difference of feel is because i love these video games and i love these tabletop games but i know there's this fundamental difference in feeling despite mm. there being literally the same rule set and maybe that exposes something about the weakness of only just looking at rules when trying to determine what the feel of a game is actually going to be yeah i think that's that's the easy bit right mm. if you're making a game we could just make the mechanics people love the mechanics or at least they say they do so as long as we get that right maybe we can you know, not worry too much about making fantastically written characters or responsiveness to player choices and that kind of thing. Yeah. Didn't Neverwinter Nights do a thing to like let you run your own campaign? It did. It? Yeah, it did. 
And that was, I think, used very much for that purpose. Like, as soon as you reinsert a DM of some kind, mm. you solve a lot of these problems. Uh, although a little bit more restricted in the video game sense. Mm. But nonetheless, it's just, I don't know. It feels like, for me, the great objective of all these games is, is how do we get to a position where, um, you know, an AI or a, a game manager from a you know software point of view is capable of creating these kinds of experiences that you would normally get around tabletop and the easy answer is you can't but it's you know yeah i wonder if um another thing comes up in like the discussion between systems that generate stories and people that generate stories is that in some cases like maybe in the case of something like uncharted it needs to be a human who creates it even if the story is qualitatively identical, just knowing an AI did it would rob it of meaning and that hmm. people would take it less seriously and they would feel like the choices, that the events had less meaning if they knew it had been generated by some algorithm. But I feel, my instinct is that with the D&D thing, if there was an algorithm that could do a half-decent job of running a campaign, like it, it wouldn't be the same experience as running against a, a human, but that kind of would be the holy grail of, of, a, uh, of yeah. a computer RPG that... that Because if the, if the AI does something a bit weird or unusual or or unexpected it's kind of a good thing it's sort of like it would add variety and interest and you'd want to play it again see what he does next time and mm. um it wouldn't matter that much if it wasn't if it wasn't totally if it didn't pass the turing test of dms <laughs> like if he yeah right if you couldn't mistake it for a human dm that's kind of fine whereas it someone if you're going to tell a story like uncharted you kind of have to pass the turing test like if it's if it I feels like a robot wrote this <laughs> for it to apologize for it to pass the turing test all it would need to do is appear to be struggling to look up a rule every five minutes <laughs> while it apologizes, and you will successfully convince anyone that it's a real human being <laughs> in the game. And the first time you encounter an NPC, its name is just like question marks for like seventeen <laughs> seconds. Yeah, or exactly. fuck shit. Yeah, um, yeah. Tim. Yeah. You ask it what that you ask it what that baker's name was, and it tells you to go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know what? He's called Table. Deal with it. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Borance. Rita Hallway. If to sum up, if you've exhausted your catalogue of isometric RPGs, uh, and you're kind of maybe if you're into Pathfinder itself as a system, you'll probably find something to enjoy here. Also, specifically, Tommy, my friend, uh, you will like this. <laughs> uh, you liked Baldur's Gate specifically over any you're of the You're not talking to me, right? Because <laughs> uh, it did that kind of low-level adventuring, kind of stomping through a jungle, I mean, a forest and bits of dungeons and stuff. You like that a lot more than all the rest of them, which dealt with, like, fantasy with a capital F, planes walking, grand destinies, that kind of stuff. Uh, so, yeah, you might like it. I'll tell you what. Getting back into magic via the video game and being exposed to an amazing new generation of magic art. Because holy mm. shit, that company just hoovers up extremely talented people yeah, and points yeah. them at, like, just makes them draw. Like, I think this has happened to me generally, but like, I'm, I am, it ebbs and flows for me, but I'm definitely, like, I'm on a high fantasy thing at the moment. Like, um, Game of Thrones has exhausted my patience for low fantasy, I think. <laughs> um, and at least for now, and, and right now it's all like, I kind of, I just, I want cosmic wizard horror, terror, <laughs> you know, the sort of almost sci-fi, or it's a pyramid with a dragon on top of it, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment. Yeah, I think every uh, notable artist I follow on Twitter is deep in the magic minds at the moment. Kalisha Hannigan and Paul Scott Canavan. Yeah, and friend of Paul. Kind of, Do yeah. that. 
He's very good, isn't he? <laughs> he is, yeah. I've got a, 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 a an art print that Paul did for my RPG campaign on the wall. But um, listeners, just imagine a very good drawing of Star just Wars. Imagine a good, <laughs> just imagine a good drawing of Star Wars done by a kind man. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, just, just I don't know what it is about that particular high fantasy kind of thing at the moment, but it, it made me want to do planes walking of some kind in some kind of campaign system. I'd walk a plane. Yeah. Um, Tom, yes. what have you been up to? Uh, I've been playing the new Hitman location, New York. So Hitman 2 has had a new... I don't know if you've got an episode. I guess it's an episode. It's like the episodes that they, they used to do for Hitman 1, but it's weird because you can't just buy it. <laughs> it took me 15 minutes to work out how to buy this. Like, there's a new location for Hitman 2. It's called New York. There's a DLC for Hitman 2 called New York. I don't have it. Can I buy it? <laughs> Fuck no. There's no price next to it. There's no... <laughs> when you go to its page, it doesn't have a release date. And the, the place where a release date would be written is kind of taken up by other DLC-related information about what, how you need the base game and stuff. And then if you search for it, in that view, you can see that its release date is something like coming soon or something, hmm. which implies it's not out. But actually, it is out. You can buy it. You just have to buy the expansion pass. But the expansion pass is stored at Steam, Steam Store Decryption. It does not mention the New York thing at all. It's not mentioned. It's not listed. This thing it includes doesn't mention that just you'll get some things in future sometimes, maybe. <laughs> so anyway, and then you have to buy the whole expansion pass, which is expensive. I can't remember the exact price, but a lot more than you'd pay for like a single episode, mm. which is what I'm effectively getting it for at the moment. Um, anyway, New York itself is really good. It's a bank. Um, so Hitman, technically this is a destination and the, the vibe of Hitman, uh, the modern ones is that they, uh, create a location and then there's a primary mission that takes place in it, which is part of the main story of the whole thing. That's one long linear thread. Um, and then later they'll do things like escalation missions on this same map and you can make your own contracts on this map and stuff like that. And there'll probably be an elusive target on this map at some point. Um, but right now there's just the main mission and it is to assassinate a CEO. It does a couple of really neat things as a location. Like if you compare it to like Paris or Sapienza, it's a lot more on the Paris scale of things where it's a single building that you, you actually start already inside it and there's no exterior. So it's all just inside this one very big building. But, um, as a hitman levels go, it's, it's one of the smaller ones, but I like it, um, more than, uh, like say Colorado, which is another relatively small one. Um, because it's very much, it feels naturally small. It just is this bill. It's just, you, it's a bank. You can, it has everything that you want from a bank level in that you can do a heist. <laughs> there is a heist. There's a fucking vault. There is high security to the vault. There's multiple stages to get through there. There is, um, uh, the sort of main atrium that you start in is massive. It's like Grand Central Station. It's a huge open area. Um, that's just very visually impressive and just gives it a really nice feel. There's all these little, you know, back offices and different routes through it. And, uh, I think the fact that it's, that it's not too huge also made it kind of more satisfying to learn it. Cause I just, in the space of a week and sort of four or five play sessions, I've learned it inside out now and I've maximized, I've got like level 15 mastery for what that's worth, which means I found all the locations and I've done all the things. Um, and there is that, Going from like that feeling of like, whoa, I can just go anywhere and everything is new to me and I don't know where the hell I'm going and I, who knows where the CEO is? Like I'll, I might not find her in this run at all. Um, to, oh, I just know, give me two locations and I'll tell you the fastest way to get there and I'll <laughs> tell you who is going to see you and which ones are enforcers given this disguise and where you can find a screwdriver and all this stuff. And I'm there now. Um, 
and it, it has a couple of cool mechanics. Um, so one is Hitman's uh, the eternal struggle of the Hitman series is like it. The thing that's good about it is it's a game about killing people <laughs> and finding creative ways to do it. But it keeps wanting to do a bit more, like not just that, just something else. And it's been at its worst when it tries to do a lot else, when it tries to do like a full story or mm. um, there's loads of non-killing stuff or what you do is never killing and it's just getting from A to B. Um, absolution. <laughs> um, and then uh, even the modern hitmans flirt with it a little bit. Like I love Sapienza, but until you figure out the really easy way to destroy the sample in the, the basement, destroying the sample in the basement is a huge pain in the ass. And, to, and mm. there's one really easy way to do it. And until you figure that out, it's just like, oh, fuck's sake, I've just got to do this again the same fucking way. Um, and this this has a really good take on it, which is there's only one target, killing CEO. Um, and usually a Hitman mission gives you more than that. There's at mm. least two, so often three. Um, but the secondary objective is to get some data. And you can... The, the data is in the vault. You, if you can get into the vault, you can just get it from there. But doing the vault every single time would be boring. But there's another way to get it, which is that the CEO and her two lieutenants, like her chief of security and some other high high up person, all have a backup drive on them and the data is split between all three. So you can either get all three of those drives or you can raid the vault. And raiding the vault is time consuming because it's, it has high security. And even if you have all the key cards and things you need, it just takes a while for the door to open and stuff like that. And then once you have the actual, like, you're just taking the core of their server. And if you walk around with that, literally everybody knows you've stolen it. <laughs> like it's, it's this vet, you can't hide it. It's just the thing you have to carry because it's big enough that you can't tuck it away. Um, and so it's actually kind of an interesting decision. And if you don't want to just take the core from the vault, if you don't want to do the heist route, then it's effectively two more targets. There's kind of three targets because you, you can't get the drive off them without killing them or taking them out in some way. In fact, if you want to get Silent Assassin, you can't kill them, so it has to be a knockout. And that's kind of interesting to have two extra targets that you can't kill that you must take out. Um, so it's got a good degree of freedom there. Then there's this really kind of gimmicky mechanic, but it's, it's kind of cool where one of the sort of pre-made opportunities that you can take is that of a job applicant at this bank. And this is a guy who's really nervous and he's throwing up in the bathroom. And that's your opportunity to take his his disguise, which is just a guy wearing a suit. <laughs> For some reason, that makes everyone know, oh, that's that job applicant, even though you're bald and he isn't. <laughs> um, and you're usually wearing a suit. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's one of the many disguises in Hitman that's just basically a guy in a suit. And also, you don't look like the guy. <laughs> Um, but if you do that, you go to the job interview. The job interview is a series of Rorschach tests. <laughs> and huh. it's... You just, it's just literally just three images and they, they just say like, uh, tell us which one of these says opportunity to you and tell us which one of these says execution to you and tell us which one of these says, I can't remember the other one, um, prosperity, I think. Um, and there are, there's a way to get it perfectly right and there's a way to get it semi right and there's a way to fuck it up. Hmm. And once you've done it once, the thing is you'd choose as the player which one to say, but, uh, 47 will deliver a line of dialogue that's the same every time and it's clear from what he says what he really thinks it represents and so i did it once basically and i got i did all right um one of them just looks like fucking hitman holding two pistols it just does <laughs> it's just like very intentionally this is just hitman holding two pistols and so when they asked me which one to pick for execution i naively did not pick that one because i thought i don't want to just literally tell them i'm <laughs> going to kill them turns out that's the right one to pick because <laughs> all his lines as always i should have figured this out because everything he ever says to anybody is basically i'm going to kill you i'm going to kill everybody i kill people for a living my i'm a professional assassin my name's toby murder yeah <laughs> um but basically so uh 
I partially succeeded the first time I tried it. And they said, uh, well, we don't think you're quite right for this, this, uh, stockbroker position, but we can actually get you a job uh, as a teller. And that means I have access to everything up to the first floor, like the basement on the first floor. That disguise is now good for all those areas, but it's not good for the higher-up floors. They give you a job immediately. Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, you start tomorrow, but they say, feel free to look around and get get the feel of the place before you start, which is a decent conceit for that. This is a good millennial fantasy. Yeah. but then if you get the job perfectly, then you have a, you have clearance for basically the entire building. It's one of the only like truly perfect disguises because no one knows what this guy looked like except that like everyone's been told you got the job. I guess they must describe your suit to them because <laughs> that's the only way anyone would know who you are. They don't give you a key card or anything. <laughs> if there's a man in the suit, the bank just let him in. Like, <laughs> in the suit, <laughs> pass them through all security. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, it's a nice like, uh, twist on the disguise thing in the same way Hokkaido had this idea of like disguises had, had were inherently key cards as well this one has this idea that there's this one disguise that has a variable level of access depending on how well you do in the interview hmm. um, if you do acing into this like, well, I guess you run the bank now congratulations <laughs> <laughs> no acing is getting a job as an investment banker which does basically yeah it lets you go anywhere um, and it's it's the mechanics of Hitman the modern Hitman's is just like there's opportunities you can follow and then what you're really trying to do is get all the challenges and the challenges to get you points that unlock new starting locations and stuff. That loop is still really satisfying. It's just very rewarding to figure out like, how can I poison this person and also drown them and also shoot them in the head and also <laughs> throw them out a window? There's, this is one of the best accidental kills that I've seen in that this is a CEO who has an office that overlooks this huge foyer that I mentioned and it's, she overlooks it through a giant kind of glass clock face. And she regularly leans against it and makes monologues about how pathetic everyone is and how it's better to be feared than to be loved. Um, and the, the accident kill is just, before she does that, you just go there and just like loosen the screws <laughs> and just wait. And then <laughs> the great thing is she still does the monologue and then like, but just it, uh, there's a way to like script this scene where you decide when the monologue got interrupted. And Hitman itself has done stuff like this where like they'll script it so that, you know, they're saying something really significant just as they die. And it's that, I don't really like that. It's very stagey. This just made me crack up because they don't do that. And she's just in the middle of a monologue and then where there, she has multiple ones. And so just whatever sentence she's in the middle of when she leans against the thing, and suddenly just crash and she falls out. <laughs> and when it happened to me, she actually carried on with her monologue for a second after she fell. <laughs> One more thing! <laughs> like, fair play to them. It does cut out when she dies, but while she's falling, she's still talking. <laughs> does Hitman deliver one-liners after he kills? I can't mm. remember. It seems like there's a no, lot of opportunity before there. Before he right. does. So one of the ways to get to her is you can dress up as someone who's being fired for his terrible sweaters. <laughs> and um, while she's talking to you, you know, she's, she's very concerned about, or pretends to be concerned about your... Uh, your mental state and stuff and you can say things like this isn't my first termination <laughs> and he's, he's full of puns about how he's going to kill yeah all, <laughs> of, his, all of his lines of dialogue as you're established uh, I'm a murder man yeah. <laughs> and I'm here to murder you <laughs> now, even that clock face thing is kind of nicely done in that you can both it's a very sort of sly way to do it is to unscrew the, the, the screws and just let it happen but if you can't it's tricky to do because the guard's watching it all the time and you, you need to get there with a screwdriver with a disguise that they, they're going to let you get to it um if you can't do that you can just while she's leaning against it and you haven't unscrewed the screws if you're behind it you can just push her <laughs> and that's enough um so like after figuring out ways to do it just like 
the first run is always just like, oh, what the hell is this map? Where can I go? Where can't I go? What's going on? And then you, I always do some kind of, like, I like to just finish it, like, after I've explored mm. it a while. It's already too late to do silent assassin because I got caught, like, stealing that guy's disguise and I shot this other guy and whatever. And then I just find some fucking way to just, like, shoot her <laughs> and run out of there and just complete it. Because when you complete it, that's when all the challenges kind of register and you unlock the new starting locations and you can get a better handle on it. Uh, and then eventually you figure out a way to do silent assassin. And then the next stage is, what score have my friends got on this map? And currently only John T has done it of my friend, of my Steam friends. And, um, I'm trying to get more people to do it because I got a, a pretty decent time on, uh, professional, uh, Silent Assassin. I think I got like five minutes and 25 seconds. And then John T came back and beat me by a full minute. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been exchanging notes on like how we do it. And his method is basically just better than mine. Uh, but then I looked at his method and thought, mm, I think the way I, I got rid of the guards outside the vault is actually faster than your way. So I'm going to try that. And not only is it faster, but it's just faster enough that from there, when you sprint to the CEO's office, she's in this private room, which is the perfect place to take her out. And that's where Jonty takes her out as well. But he has to wait for another cycle for her to go back there because by the time he gets there, she's already out of it on her first cycle. And I got there for the first cycle and therefore I did it in a minute faster than him this time. So now I'm on like three minutes 25, which is really <laughs> fast. And yeah, that, that, that's when it really comes into its own is when mm. you you know all this stuff the opportunity system does deliver these solutions to you on a plate like it's not clever to figure out how to raid the vault or uh, all this other stuff because it just tells you how to do it but then the all the interesting stuff comes in like how do i piece together all these things i do know about this map to make the fastest possible route through it mm. and having friends um beat your time on that is such a great motivator because it just you know like the overall scoreboards are not that interesting because like the person who's who's got the highest score has done it in 30 seconds which is probably just a cheat or maybe a glitch or if if they're playing the game they're just playing a very different game to what i'm playing that, yeah, right. that is to run from one end of the building to the other is more than 30 seconds for me <laughs> so i don't know what he's doing um but when it's your friends it's always like fucking jaunty figured it out surely i can figure it out <laughs> and then <laughs> you do and then he beats you again and then it's yeah it's low-key burn on jaunty there yep <laughs> <laughs> no jaunty's actually really good at this <laughs> I was going to ask about the opportunity system because the first few episodes they struggle between signposting and allowing you to find them naturally. Yeah, have they kind of worked that out now? No, <laughs> <laughs> it's I, and I th this time playing it, I realised what I really want from this, the ultimate version, what they should do for like Hitman Three or whatever. Because Hitman Two is an unusual thing in that it's really basically season two. Like they haven't moved on much. They've just made new levels in the same format with the same opportunity system and same, all the same problems with Hitman one, um, or whatever you want to call it. Hitman 2016, I think it is. Um, but I realize, so the, the issue is like, if you have opportunities on, then it just tells you where to go and what to do. You can scale it down. So it just tells you like where they start and then you got to figure it out for themselves. But they're just, doing that is not that much fun just because it's still a preordained solution they just made this way to do it and you just have to fucking find this particular key they were thinking of you to find and mm -hmm. there's no innovation in it it's just harder to do um and i realized what i really want is for it to be like an information game like a sort of her story type thing or, mm. or a mm. one of those games where uh, my definition of information game is where like your goal is information and also the way you get information is from other information and so i overheard somebody saying that she had this file that she was thinking about leaking and it's in a safety deposit box and the key is on her desk. And so I know I need a safety deposit box key that is on this person's desk. I don't know where her desk is. And actually, I think there's a just a straight up 
mistake in this level because she is she says she's looking at the journalist right now and she is on a different floor to the journalist <laughs> there's no way she can see the journalist i know where the journalist is and actually her desk is near the journalist if she was at a desk she would be seeing the journalist but she isn't and i think she's been misplaced but what i wanted is like i know what i need to find i don't want to fucking search the level for this key i know like i have all the information i want to just like basically have a system where you can kind of like when you have intel sort of traded in for better intel like i know i want this diana where is this person's key like i need some like it's a drop down yeah. list of like here are all the possible things you could ask for i'm gonna ask for this asking for that costs one intel and now it's gone so if i got it wrong it you know i don't get it but if i know what i'm looking for then you get this information back and so mm. the hints that they provide to you for free right now that just, where it just leads you with breadcrumb trail and tells you exactly what to do if that was slightly gamified if it was just like okay here's my information i've got tell me how to get to it that would be way more satisfying i think yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Like, because then, then you would be incentivized to demonstrate that you understood the situation. Yeah. Which is the key thing, right? Like, and that's, yeah, that's the thing that's been a real revelation with, with things like her story and Oberdin and, and Outer Wilds is mm. as soon, and Phantom Doctrine to a little, to a small extent is as soon as this is a game, as soon as the information is the game, I am listening so intently to everything. I'm just like soaking up this information and all the things I usually find boring in, in, these games of like, oh, I've just got to sit to listen to this guy talk for ages. If I know that this is, could be useful to me and I actually will be asked what this information is, I'm paying so much more attention. Yeah, yeah, right. Can I just challenge you to uh, death by clockface puns? Ooh. It feels like I put you both <laughs> to was, work. And was, I've thought of yeah. some, so... <laughs> uh, I guess it was her time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So much for the golden parachutes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the mission is called Golden Handshake, yeah. which actually I think yours is better because Golden Handshake doesn't really like. Yeah, okay, that's, that's the thing you get yeah. when you get fired, but it doesn't mean killing somebody, does yeah. it? <laughs> Time to clock off. <laughs> it looks like she needed a hand. <laughs> <laughs> looks like she had a screw loose. Nice. Mm. Yeah. You know you got a good one when nobody laughs, but everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Clock, stock, and two smoking. <laughs> See, nobody compliments that. Yeah, because a laugh. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't make any sense. But and that's often the way with humor. Like, the yeah. stuff that's really funny just doesn't yeah. really work. <laughs> okay, I think we're done here. <laughs> Ouch. Bong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's the bottom. That's the bottom of the barrel. We found it. Shall we do some questions? Yes. Yeah. Nice. Okay, first question comes from Matthew, um, who writes, Regarding your question last week about gaming euphemisms, my girlfriend thinks RimWorld is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> She's so immature. Yeah, that seems unfair, really, because RimWorld is hilarious. <laughs> It's just a funny thing to call a game. Yep. There's nothing else to say about that. And thank you for not appending a question to this answer. <laughs> but there we go. Uh, next comes from Rick, who writes, Dear Wait and What Now? Can someone, Chris, explain the lore of Dota Underlords? Why is everyone in the street? What is beyond the gate? Is there crime happening? <laughs> Thanks, Rick. See, I'm just, I wanted to draw attention to this because I think this is a remarkable instance of us accidentally answering a question yep. before. But, um, <laughs> And I am surprised as well that this is the theme they chose. 
I managed to play this whole game without even thinking about theme or like the street, the gate. What? But I, <laughs> I noticed like, these things. I feel like if we were to, de- if we just really felt like right now, just depressing game artists. Like, <laughs> what you could say is like when you load Dota Underworlds, the, the splash screen on the main menu is three sort of like artful dodger looking fantasy crime lords flipping coins and fiddling with their flick knives and you know fucking sharks and jetsing it up in an alleyway um and no one has picked up on that no no one knows what the theme is even the theme's right there but no one no one cares a second they just want to click through to the clicking and the luck and the wizards and the the prizes they don't care at all i think it's meaningless to them I think, like, once itself. you tell people... Oh, no. Now I'm... <laughs> I'm, like, I'm jumping make, in here. I, I was just talking then until we made John sad. That was the... <laughs> I think I think it's a, a question of order operations. I think if you tell people what the theme is and then you show it to them, they appreciate it. They're like, oh, yeah, I see the, the thief yeah. slipping the coin and all this, all this cool stuff. But if you just show them that by itself and you haven't told them anything yet, like, it doesn't sink in. Yeah. Turns out, turns out, Words are worth a thousand pictures. <laughs> Checkmate art. Right, we're gonna. There, I saw some knives on the way in. Yeah. If I can settle this. That's the explanation for Dead Lords. <laughs> we covered short. it. We covered it. It's fine. Can we kind of like shift it slightly into the modern era and have like supermarket car parks with catapults doing donuts? In <laughs> yeah, like boy racer trebuchets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kids. That's a great idea, like a trebuchet with a huge underslung exhaust, <laughs> a booming sound system. Ballista drift. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a, oh man. <laughs> I want the love child of like totally accurate battlegrounds and like an asphalt. <laughs> oh, they come again, guys. Been trying to get car combat for a while now. They should have been thinking with catapults. Mm. Yeah. Now you're thinking with catapults. Is the <laughs> um, next question is from uh, sebastian who writes dear crate and chest box right after listening to last week's episode in which you hoped to one day meet someone called guy chapman <laughs> i finished dark souls 2 and saw in the credits that one of the voice actors is named adam chapman if you know your hebrew etymology you will delight to recognize this is one variant of the man 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 you wished for <laughs> i just thought you'd like to know Cheers, Sebastian. All right, a question. A long time ago, you debated whether someone new to Souls should start with Dark Souls 1 or Bloodborne. Now that Dark Souls 3 and Sekiro have come, what is the ideal series introduction? My money is still on Dark Souls 1 because I've recently done that, and it is incredible. That's from Sebastian. Yes, answer this question. I'm interested. I've played a bit of Dark Souls, and I bounced off it because the path I saw ahead of me was... Uh, learning by rote enemy attack patterns and the point at which to counter them. That sounds reasonable. Okay, bad news, John. <laughs> <laughs> I got some bad news and I got some good news. Okay. Thing is, that is the game. Right. Okay. And it is great. However, um, it changes from system to system. I think the big thing that's, that, that the From Software oeuvre has gained in the last couple of years is, um, thematic variety. Mm. Um, you know, I think maybe we maybe dwelled on mechanics too much before. Like the great joy of these games is partly the systems and the difficulty and things like that, but it's also partly like the incredible creature design and the places mm. and the amazing world building and the sense of an adventure that you go on. And I think that's only been strengthened by giving you multiple ways, which were multiple themes to choose from. And so now functionally you have Dark Souls, which is this sort of um 
sort of um spiritual low fantasy really with some high fantasy elements um like kind of pilgrim's progress you know the the sad parts of arthurian fiction <laughs> mixed with big monsters um and then you have bloodborne which is this sort of um amazing probably i think one of the best post lovecraft lovecraftian bits of world building mm. Um, and I'm hypercritical of lots of that stuff yeah. and it's incredible on that basis, like a legitimate kind of reworking of cosmic horror in mm. a really interesting way. Um, someone pointed out recently that when we talk about ocean willies, what we really mean is cosmic horror <laughs> and so, or space willies. So yeah, just some of the most tremendous space willies, um, you'll encounter. Um, and now Sekiro, which is, um, you know, has a very specific relationship with Japanese history and folklore, which is, um, you know, very much its own thing, but also it feels a little more grounded. It feels a little bit more like, a, um, uh, it's got, it's got a little bit more, it's got more talking, a bit more humanity to it than the others. It's more, it's got, uh, it is still a fable, but it's, you know, grounded in history, which the others aren't, you know, mm. and, and then ultimately in, in mythology and, and the sort of symbolic thing that they all go into. And so that gives you different ways in based on what your particular interests are. Mm. I also found Sekiro, I only played Dark Souls on Sekiro, but, um, I got on better with Sekiro because, uh, the learning of the enemies felt more instinctual than, yeah. than Dark Souls. Dark Souls, I felt like, I, oh, there's just like a rigorous solution here. And, None of it sort of looked good. I don't mean like uh, the models or the, or the animations or whatever. It's just like, you know, I'm doing forwards rolls through the giant man's butt and then <laughs> turning around and doing an attack animation. It doesn't really connect. Whereas Sekiro is like really just like fucking swords actually hitting each other and just felt, feels yeah. really kinetic. And, and that's the thing. I think and when I, you do it well, it's like, oh shit, that just looked awesome. I think, I think when you, yeah, like, um, I think after this podcast, I'm going to show you one gif of Sekiro when a boss fight goes well, and I think it will sell you on it. Because it is the same thing of, like, learning of patterns and things. Yeah. But the reward is far more palpable in terms of, like, you are... Um, it's well, it's far less of an RPG. Mm. So you're not... You know, you are getting new abilities and new gadgets and things, but you're really constructing a playstyle more, more than leveling up. Mm. And, you know, you, you don't... You are still using the same sword at the end of the game that you use at the beginning of the game. You're not replacing your equipment, like the core elements of your equipment. Hmm. It's just you are a swordsman, and it's about okay. doing good. Sword. It's got the best. It's got my favorite health bar system for sword fighting that I've ever seen. Hmm. Like the uh, we've talked about the Popenti, but like the mixture of breaking someone's um, posture rather than their health as a way to access death blows is hmm. okay. I'm right as hell. Yeah. Okay, good, good, positive twitching. <laughs> yeah. Like I say, I think I can tell you want it with a gif. Next up, Noah writes, Dear Mangoes and Yumus, in your most recent venture into Mobile Land, you mentioned denying and the mysterious knock-on effects of small mechanical changes. This struck a chord with me as denying is one of the things I like least about Dota. The lack of denying in LOL means that in order to starve your opponents, you have to engage in more poking and footsies which has a knock-on effect of incentivizing aggression, which has a knock-on effect of allowing supports to punish bad positioning early game more often, which has the etc. etc. Can you think of similar minor-sounding mechanics that completely shape a game's meta or development? Uh, Noah. I feel like I need to get it off my chest immediately that I disagree with most of this question. <laughs> Dota has both of those things, but I would agree that, I'd agree that removing denying makes those some of those other aggressive things more accessible in League of Legends, therefore they probably manifest at lower tiers but in professional play there is no difference it's just dota has a different skill level 
really in terms of one-on-one laning because mm. you have to both be aggressive and proactively deny your own creeps. There's just more to, to do. I probably agree with a broader point that was here about skill shots, but let's not get into those weeds because <laughs> everyone go and go asleep. <laughs> uh, it just... Just because I was playing uh, Pathfinder, it made me think there's two characters where, thanks to their slavish interpretation of the rules, in order to be effective, they have to cast a spell every single round before they make a melee attack. And that means that level of micromanagement means I simply won't play them. <laughs> so that's just two NPCs off the table that I'll never touch. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I, I actually thought of Hitman a little bit, just because I was talking about it, where the opportunity system in the modern Hitman... It, hits hits men is the correct plural um is it's very close there were a bunch of opportunity like things in blood money but i talked before about that blood money has something that the modern ones don't and i'm not necessarily saying it's better i think the modern ones are just more modern games and they're better made in a lot of ways um but when there's like there's a whiskey insider like a globe thing that opens that a certain patient goes to in a certain mission in blood money and learning that he drinks from there and realizing, Oh, I could get in and poison that. That was like me inventing a solution, even though it was mm. put there by designers and they thought about it and they, they set it up so I could do it because I had learned that my own way. I, it felt like my idea. And in, in the modern hitman hits men, they, <laughs> Uh, create those same kinds of opportunities, but they just signpost them. And you can even turn the signposting off, but I don't want to turn the signposting off because then it takes ages to find those things. And if I turn it on, then it just tells me to do it and there's no joy in it. I'm just like, oh, I just do it. And okay, yeah, it happened, but that's what they told me it would happen. And, and it, all the interest is gone. And they're so similar in a lot of ways, but just, I think, I think partly is that blood money, because it just had nothing like that. You would just spend your time doing the normal, like just, is there any way I can get this guy alone ever? Mm. And then can I do anything to him that, that would kill him and get away with it at all? You spend all your time doing that. And then along the way, you notice these other opportunities and the modern one by offering you that as a, as a total cheat kind of solution thing. Um, it just, for me, it invalidates those things. It just makes them way less interesting. Mm. I think these, uh, small changes are, mostly amplified in multiplayer games where those tiny advantages are suddenly incredibly yeah. important. Uh, and it makes me think about knife running in Counter-Strike. <laughs> it was a really basic example. <laughs> you run faster with your knife out. Uh, and that means you have a secondary layer uh, when you're moving around in Counter-Strike. It's like, what zones is it safe for me to uh, switch to the knife and move faster? What Time is this advantageous? Um, that is so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> just like it's dumb, but it becomes if, a mechanic. If it was just like holstering your weapon and that made you run faster. Okay, yeah, I get it. Like you can't sort of be aiming from the hip whilst running and and do it at the same speed. But the fact that you bring out a knife <laughs> is such a video game thing. I can only run faster if I'm looking at the knife. I need to see the blade. Yeah, you just get this secondary overlay of the map in your head. It's like these spaces are safe for knife running. <laughs> at these specific times and yeah. yeah right yeah that's what i like about these sort of i think i think you're right that multiplayer games tend to bring out these in fact i think the art of design of multiplayer game design is so often about these details and just about as important as anything else mm. and i think it is the reason that most of the great competitive designs are um mods to be honest <laughs> like i think you can you know like if you name a 
a great multiplayer archetype, then mods do pretty well. Like in terms of the overall kind of like what designs succeed over time. Mm-hmm. Like elsewhere in gaming, it's not quite so much the case, but in, in competitive multiplayer design, it absolutely is. Yeah, it's hard to mess with the, with the um, underlords and the auto chess thing. Yeah. We were watching it happen Coming live, straight right? off Dota, you know, we like we knew it happened with Dota, but like, for me at least, I wasn't sort of seeing it happen. I knew about Dota long before Valve right. bought it, but it wasn't a thing that I was t- thinking about and hearing about every day. Um, whereas Auto Chess was just like, oh yeah, we saw that. I was listening to podcasts about Auto Chess before Underlords was announced, mm-hmm. and now Underlords and Team Fight Tactics are both out, and they're both yeah. major companies have done it. And it, it's yeah, it's it's hard not to miss this. This thing about like, it seems like multi- competitive multiplayer game design is a problem that like major AAA companies just can't solve and big, big communities of players can solve. Like, yeah. It's just like, it's funny. You just need this many brains on it for somebody to come up with something. Just I would, I would argue explodes. strongly that this is how sports happen. <laughs> sports don't get designed. They grow. Like they, mm-hmm. you know, you know, a lot of people play with a ball in a particular way over a long enough period of time and they'll figure out probably the best way of doing that. Yeah. And like, that's not to say that crowd design is the answer for all kinds of game design. It's just specifically competitive multiplayer game design. Like, you know, um, there's, I think, you know, I think this is one of the reasons that, um, well, I think Blizzard have a really interesting relationship with this because they are certainly a company that has ownership of several great, you know, robust competitive games, but really competitive Starcraft I wouldn't say it was an accident necessarily, but what it became is definitely not what the core design goals of that game were Mm. intended to, to produce as far as experience goes. And, you know, from Starcraft two onwards, what you can see is a company kind of building something new around the game, loop single player modes and co-op modes to get people a way in while trying not to touch too much. The kind of core sandbox that obviously they can add things to it, but the competitive version of the game was almost grown for them. Um, out of the pieces that they'd originally provided. And then, you know, competitive Warcraft 3 really wasn't a big thing beyond a certain point, at least not relevant to Dota, which was what the community took with that map editor and all of those things and made out of it. Mm. And you could, like, it just occurred to me that, like, oh, I, I was just thinking about it. Then I think, oh, maybe I can't make this point because, you know, they have made Overwatch a successful esport, but Overwatch is Team Fortress. Yeah. <laughs> Team Fortress is a mod. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's like, the thing, even with Valve, like all their, their biggest, like Counter-Strike and yep. Team Fortress and... Dota are all mods. And even so. Portal, which is not a multiplayer game or, or a massive multiplayer phenomenon or anything, but even that was an external project they saw and bought, basically. Yeah, right. So it's, you know, it's, it's fun. And I, I think, think there's something in that. As we're talking about this, the thing that strikes me is like, you know, I'm contrasting this, the, the Dota and an auto chess thing, um, uh, it feels like a sort of watershed moment where like the biggest games are coming from the community, not from AAA companies. And I was thinking back to what, what was it like when AAA companies would, would come out with these games and it was Doom and Quake and Half-Life and they're very technology driven. Like that's yeah. the, the reason id are a game we all know is because they had John Carmack basically. And he was just like, he was making technology that no one else was making. And so they had an engine that was just so much better than anything else that existed on earth. And so when they made a game with it, it was fucking incredible because technology was such a 
like such a tightly constraining limiting factor on everything like you couldn't make anything like that unless you had the tech and now tech is just much less of a problem it's like there aren't that many game designs that you just can't do for right. tech reasons mm. i think what we talked about this you know this discussion the reference to nine came because of that that gdc talk you referenced about you know i think it was soren johnson's kind yeah. of difficult relationship with denying as a concept as a game design concept and like I think the thing that undermines, um, I guess, designer-led attitudes to game design is when, is the fact that communities of people can often find ways to make things fun or find the depth in things or create interesting consequences from either limitations or, um, features that weren't fully intentional or, or those kinds of things. And that forces you, I think, if you're approaching it in an even handed way to, reassess your kind of qualitative process for assessing the quality of a given design decision. Cause it's like, if on perp, if on paper, this discourages behavior that we want and maybe is complicated, then rather than say it's outright bad, it's like, well, what happens when we expose it to 3000 people of varying skill levels? Does a meta evolve? Does a way of interacting with this limitation evolve? That's actually interesting. And like that for me is the great philosophical divide between Dota and League of Legends. Um, and I, and like, I really don't come down super strong on either side of that as, as well. I do, but like, there's, but I completely respect LOL as a game and as a esport and things like that. It's, you know, it, but it's, I find that distinction really fascinating in terms of what can, where can you get when you let the mechanics just evolve and inform the possibility space themselves rather than, yeah. rather than saying, here is the experience we're trying to create. We'll draw the line here, even though in so many other cases, that's what design is. Like, it's re, like, you know, in any other form of design, when you talk about architecture or something else, it'd be really weird to hold your hands up and say, we're just going to let the rest of this do itself. <laughs> like, but that's one thing that's great about game design. And I think it almost requires a competitive context because, um, you can't do this with single player games. And the reason is, um, the potential like, uh, output of a single player game in terms of the experiences people could go for is so variable. Some people will want to master the mechanics. Some people will want to be creative. Some people will want to see the story. Some people will want to, um, you know, some people will see, simply want to see all of the different parts of it. But with a competitive game, you can just about almost always boil it down to both sides want to win. <laughs> and if you can do that, then every mechanic becomes interesting. Mm, it's like, yeah. it doesn't matter whether it's crazy and physics driven like Gang Beasts or it's super rules driven like Dota. And it's like, you're sort of forced to care about it as well. Like, you yeah. can't, you can't be the kind of player like, you know, when I play, a lot of games i just sort of ignore a bunch of mechanics like i don't care about being good at archery or whatever because it's not what i'm interested in even if archery is the best way to play this game i don't care but if it's yeah. an player game i fucking gotta care about archery <laughs> right yeah well, you, you have a relationship archer. with it you have to, you suddenly forced to have a relationship with it if it's overpowered but you don't enjoy it maybe you don't like the game or maybe you don't like the part of the game maybe you then think less of people who like that part of the game but that all becomes part of the fucking fabric of the thing and that's why they're so interesting um that's why i don't play them <laughs> yeah but, you know, it's like and that's why i really enjoy them i think because it's like you enter this sort of designerless kind of void where it's like let's just see what happens with all these pieces and and what people end up doing with them mm. like i even think the act of playing a sufficiently mechanically varied um competitive game is in itself kind of game design on the fly like if you go on a Mordhau duel server with all of the different weapons that are available in that game and all the physics and everything else and the dueling and the mechanics, watching someone teach someone else is basically a lesson, them teaching them the actual mechanics of the game as they see it, right? Like this window is too quick to, this this timing window doesn't work in relation to this, so you've got to do it like this. They're not 
correct in an objective mm. way. They are expressing their interpretation of the mechanics. Um, and enough people believe that, that becomes a meta game. Yeah. Like, and that thing of like, you know, in Dota, like tiers of, of yeah. champions, like, oh, this one's a shit tier one and this one's a god tier right. one. And-, mm. and actually, that's one interesting distinction between those games. In League of Legends, uh, the, the usable roster of characters at a top level is much more limited than it is in Dota because it's somewhat enforced by design. It's somewhat mm. enforced by what is being emphasized deliberately in patches at a given time, what's been revamped recently and what hasn't. Um, Dota obviously has an effect as well, but Dota tends to have a much broader range of characters picked at big events because most things stay viable for longer and the meta is much more of a social construct. You know, there's a, you know, there are great examples of characters that everyone thinks are complete garbage suddenly overnight becoming first pick and ban choices with no mechanical change having taken place <laughs> simply because of an attitude shift. And that for me is like fucking, mm, that's pure, <laughs> like why these games are interesting. Um, I've just been seething for like five minutes that my uni friend's mod didn't transform into a billion dollar property. Yeah. <laughs> it's just hidden. Yeah. They're hidden. Yeah. Maybe well, that, that was great as well. Maybe I mean, we had like half a million players. We would have uh, been able to refine it into a competitive. Well, fucking Crytek stole sport. it for Crisis 3. Well, I, mean, yeah, I guess that's the <laughs> highest accolade we can get. <laughs> also, you, it was, and forgive me if I'm wrong about this, because I, I played it, but an asymmetric first person game right yes the one thing you definitely don't want to do yeah exactly <laughs> like it's like the only rule it's like it's it's the only rule of things that never work and it's asymmetric first person <laughs> competitive <laughs> games they've literally never been successful evolve didn't work like i don't know what it is that mm. asymmet- i mean technically counter-strike is asymmetric <laughs> oh, mm. <laughs> okay. Asy- asymmetric beyond one side must plant bomb yeah. one side must defuse bomb well okay i'll, I'll be more specific First person competitive games where one side is monster. Yeah. Mm. Incredible history of being great ideas that actually in the hidden is one of the better, like executed. That's great. It legitimately is though. Commander <laughs> Evolve, which basically just didn't function. Mm. Like, I just you could like that it recently because, um, Insurgency got a retail release recently. Oh, yeah. I think. And they came up alongside us pretty much for the same kind of modding era. Right. So good on those guys. Everyone likes army men. <laughs> they do. I wonder if I don't want to get too much into the theory wang of this, but like, I wonder if there's something in, I think I suspect that asymmetric games require a really strong hand of a designer to some extent. Mm. Like when you, when you leave the symmetry of the sides up to, in terms of character choice and so on, somewhat up to chance in terms of ban lists and picks and bans and that kind of process, you abdicate responsibility for like really finely balancing the experience between mm. two teams. If one team drafts their heroes wrong, and they end up in a one-sided match, then, okay, well, they had that choice. Like, when you are deliberately setting up an imbalance and then trying to resolve it, you need a designer, and that is antithetical to what mods are, what mod-derived competitive games are good at. Yeah, I'm not sure, like, brute force player-based game design can fix that kind of thing. No. When it, what, when it, by design, one one person is having a radically difficult, a radically different, and probably more exciting experience than the other four to ten people on the server yes precisely yeah that was that's also a common thread in like sort of abandoned game mechanics and like the commander in battlefield you know battle 2 had this commander role that one person did it and it was it was kind of too much i mean it worked great in a bunch of games i played but uh it was possible for some asshole to get in that role and fuck it all up for everybody (laughs) and same with uh team fortress um tf2 
the payload mode came about from trying to adapt the uh was it called the assassination mode in in the original team fortress yeah like, there's a vip one, that one you're trying person to protect is a big man yeah so <laughs> an actual player is is the person that you're trying to protect and the enemy team are trying to assassinate them and uh it was uh, there are a lot of people who who still say that, that is the best mode team fortress has ever had and there's, great, no, there's yeah. nothing in tf2 that's as good uh including payload but payload was valve's attempt to capture some of that the fun of that without the lows and they, they the lows as they use here is like when the vip is just a fucking idiot <laughs> it ruins it for everybody i feel like a generation of particularly younger gamers who've gotten used to pushing the payload being like a meme would love the idea of the idiot payload yeah like <laughs> sorry imagine if you're like you're trying to defend the payload but the fucking payload is running into some weird <laughs> yeah. corner there. <laughs> the payload is lost <laughs> yeah exactly like, I think, uh, the games like Planetside make for another interesting comparison here. I mm. think there's an element of, um, oh man, I could just talk about this all, all the time. Mm. The other great thing, so, the other thing that defines these asymmetrical games in relation to other kinds of things is where there's a fantasy involved. Uh, one thing that upsets great kind of community-led competitive game design is there being a, an experience to provide alongside, beyond simply comp- comp- competition, right? I'll give you an example. Dota, used to divide its heroes as um, a Scourge and not Radiant. They're called Radiant now. <laughs> what the fuck were they called then? Sentinel. Um, and um, and that was part, that was thematic. That was law. That mm. was who's on what side. Doesn't fucking work. You have to break down those barriers. You can't make fiction be one of the things players have to mm. contend with, even though <laughs> that would, that is, that is pure design. It's pure like, well, there's a story we want to tell here. There's an experience we want to express. no, not allowed that put the pieces there's, in the box shake it just like because i don't know that well um there's still like a there's like a scourge side of the map and a radiant side yeah there's of the map, radiant right? sides of the map but, but any you know, the people who play on the radiant side of the map aren't restricted to radiant characters right no it's, it's all well, characters do have an alignment but yeah, they're not bound it to doesn't those. matter whatever. yeah cause, <laughs> but the story of dota as they got to it with the artifact is that every dota match is canon because every Dota match is the end of the universe. So whenever the Ancient blows up at the end of a Dota game, one side wins, time resets. And all of history happens again back to that point. And that reshuffles who was at what place <laughs> for the final <laughs> that battle. It. Which is kind of a cool solution to something that has to be the case mechanically, which is anyone can be anywhere. Similarly, asymmetrical games where one player's a monster or something have an aesthetic they're going for. Mm. You want you to feel like a monster. You don't want you to feel like... Um, and similarly, games like Planet Side always had this option about we want big sci-fi war with lots of different roles being important. We want pilots to be important. We want transport drivers to be important. We want, you know, commanders and, and, you know, CQC guys and snipers and so on. And trying to create a balance where that experience manifests is really fucking difficult. Players will just optimize it and tell each other off for doing the suboptimal things. And that creates a negative experience. I fucking love it. like the Dota thing is is kind of funny to me, but then Overwatch is even funnier because it's like they they went so big on the fiction of like there's this evil team and the good team and we're gonna like have fucking comic books about why they're good and why they're evil and what they believe in, but also you just play as whatever. <laughs> there's not a, like a a good team and a bad team. It's just you just are you on this team? You want to be Widowmaker? You can be. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. They're all fighting it's each other. Complete- you can be three Widowmakers versus three <laughs> other Widowmakers. Whatever. I don't give a fuck about the fiction. <laughs> we just said we did, but we don't. <laughs> Yeah, I find that distinction quite frustrating, personally. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I mean, TF2 at least 
they're all just fucking mercenaries and so it is weird that there's like three spies or whatever but they are all just mercenaries and there's red versus blue and it's it's it plays up how arbitrary it is mm-hmm. whereas overwatch went so deep on like there are two different factions they're fighting each other they are two different they sides but also that has love. no effect on who you can play <laughs> but they must also push a cart <laughs> yeah what were we talking about i would bet that no like valve and blizzard and and co are not trying to figure out how do we be the guys who invented auto chess they're trying to figure out how do we be epic because <laughs> yeah. Fortnite was they didn't have to invent the fucking thing they just saw someone else's <laughs> thing and they capitalized it in such a way that they overtook that thing and that's what you got to do yeah i mean well, sometimes you just got to do it and make it free like that's <laughs> that's the thing like um it'll be interesting to see if that's a repeatable phenomena like the combination about Oreal accessibility and so on. Like Fortnite is an interesting thing to exist, you know, like just as a phenomena, like it does how big it got, how quickly, despite not being an original product. Like if you talk about something like Minecraft, obviously there's a huge, yeah. um, you know, I mean, you could be pedantic and say the word infinite minor, but like, you know, nonetheless, Minecraft was the, the, Minecraft itself was the moment when that formula became successful. Yeah. Fortnite was not even the moment when Battle Royale became And it was successful. a very different fo- formula to Infinity Minor as well. Like, the block thing was Infinity Minor, but... For sure, yeah, yeah, precisely. Like, um, and there's lots to Fortnite, and there's lots of clever things that have been done with it, but, like, yeah, it's an interesting kind of... It, to me, it feels more like a success of positioning rather than hmm. um, precisely the game itself, but yeah. Be interesting to see how repeatable it is, or how long it persists. As a, maybe it may may well be too big to to ever stop being a kind of cultural object now. But yeah. Should we do a different question? How hmm. oh, a different question? I don't even remember what that question was. Now <laughs> it was about whether minor mechanics that shapes the game's meta. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, we got some thoughts on that. Um, Aiden writes, "Hi all." There's a bit in Castlevania, he means the the TV show, early on in season two, episode six, where our lovable rogue Trevor Belmont is trying to prop a door shut using a plank of wood. He tries to fit the wood diagonally across the door, but it won't stay tight. Next, he tries propping it from the floor up to the door handle, but it isn't quite long enough to reach the handle, and it slides down to the floor and clatters off. Trevor shakes his head, sighs, and walks off. This short scene was a great bit of physical comedy in the middle of a very gory and self-serious show. Can you think of moments in games like this that have brought levity to an otherwise straight-faced scene, or have shown the hero to fail at a mundane task? Thanks, Aiden. It's actually, uh, hearing that description made me think of, it wasn't an intentional moment of comedy, but I was playing Half-Life 2, Episode 2, at Valve, while Valve are watching me, and there's a certain kind of self-consciousness that goes with that always, as, you know, as games journalists, when the developers are watching you. And I was pretty much used to it by that point in my career, but there was a, there's a puzzle where you just go down into a basement and you got to restore power and there's a, there's some plugs and cables and stuff. And basically the, the, the problem you're presented with that you have to kind of, well, at least I had to actually try the wrong solution to see the problem was you plug this thing into one, uh, plug this cable into one socket and then you try and plug it into the, into the power source and it just, it doesn't reach by like, 
more than 100%. It's, you know, it's less than half the way to reaching. And there's something about, like, the physicalness of, like, trying to plug that thing in that it's not even fucking close and it kind of pops out of your hands and just clatters to the floor. I felt like the biggest idiot in the universe. <laughs> and there's just a bigger cable lying on the floor. It's just like a cable that's twice as long lying on the fucking floor and you just pick that up and you plug that in and you solve it. <laughs> and I, I remember feeling, like, so fucking embarrassed and dumb and, <laughs> and saying something to them to that effect. And they're like, oh, no, you got that quicker than, like, most people. Like, <laughs> that's just the thing that there's something about like the physicality of it that makes you feel stupid and makes yeah, it yeah. hilariously dumb i've been playing replaying man uh dissects mankind divided that's the second mm. one right and they're pretty good about modeling uh, the, the stuff that you pick up the fourth uh you if you pick up a crate that becomes a physical part of your character presence mm. and so then walking through doors or trying to get through <laughs> vents is a challenge <laughs> And I'm just glad that I didn't have Valve watching me. So Try to navigate uh, a vending machine through an air vent. Just boom, boom. Like, maybe well, if I go, working? maybe if I get into the vent first and then turn around Surely. and pick it up and drag it through. It's like transparent at that point. So isn't it a ghost vending machine? Doesn't that go through? A vent? It's solid. <laughs> I, I wish that when you tried to do that, like, you just sort of physically saw Adam, like, bump into it and, go, <laughs> <laughs> and drop it on his toes. Yeah. And then, ah! That's oh, the God. thing, right? Like, games allow you to enjoy the ungainliness of actions <laughs> that a movie or something would elide mm. normally. And the nice thing about that Castlevania scene is that it includes some of that awkwardness. It doesn't need to, but games almost have to by virtue of giving you the freedom to fuck up. It's kind of what's great about them. I mean, I was playing, um, although I'd probably return to it when, uh, Pip's next on the podcast, uh, totally reliable, uh, totally reliable delivery service, which mm-hmm. is not from the same family of games as totally accurate battle simulator. They <laughs> might be capitalizing on the totally thing somewhat, which is a, a game where you play as a bunch of portly delivery people, you and your friends, and you run around a little cartoon world. They got googly eyes. They, they, they're very, not quite googly eyes. It's more like they're, they're quite, there's quite a lot of pathos to their sort of dumpy, <laughs> like, little forms. And your only controls are to, um, left mouse button sticks your left arm out straight in front of you, and right mouse button sticks your right arm out in front of you. And if you modify either of those with Q and E, that changes them to up. <laughs> so you can go forwards and up. I'm miming this in real life, or like one up and one down, or that kind of thing. And when you put them out in front, they just stick to things. Mm. and you are given tasks to deliver stuff and like you know parcels basically from a to b in circumstances that can easily be scuppered by physics basically and it's somewhere between like uh viscera cleanup detail and totally about battle simulator in the degree to which physics can just fuck everything up for you, <laughs> you it kind of sounds like gang beasts as well it does it's got a gang beast yeah. <laughs> element to it there are vehicles and they're all over the place um in terms of physics um it was really, really fun. Really, really liked it. Had happy couple of hours playing it. But that is a real celebration of just like, those games are just games about fucking things up, basically. <laughs> and about the joy of the fact that if you physically simulate things, almost everything is a fuck up almost all of the time. Mm. Like, one of the great lies of sort of fiction is that people don't fall over or drop things or fail to do things right the first time almost every, all of, all of the time. This is reminding me of a Kickstarter um, fantasy Diablo type thing, I think called Sui Generis. Oh, yeah. Probably pronounced that this. entirely wrong. The physics which, of skeletons. Yeah, which is big things was, the big thing was that um, physics was integrated into its sword swinging mechanics and so on. 
and I don't think it was a particularly good demo, but just through the uh, act of implementing physics on your sword swing, they got a lot of like real sword fighting down uh, in just in terms of like uh, if you like turn and move and swing, then you get a big more uh, more powerful swing. But if you swing and you're too close to your enemy, then you just kind of bump into each other and yeah. fall over. <laughs> uh, and that had uh, fantastic uh, comedy accidents in it. I think the best one was the spear, which had it's like it's a pointy bit on a stick, and only the pointy bit does damage. So if you're too far away, you're rubbish. And if you're too close, you're rubbish. And you're just kind of rubbing against each other. Uh, I think just by accident, they managed to capture some very accurate fighting. Yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's going to be an amount, immense amount of like human experience by volume that's gone completely unrecorded, which is people in battles mm. sort of fucking falling over and flailing at each other. And, exactly. Yeah. 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 The amount of fucking up on the medieval battlefield is probably gone largely unmarked by passage of history. I mean, I've done, I did reenactment for a couple of years, so I have some experience of that. And I don't want to generalize, but a lot of reenactors are unfit and slightly off balance. <laughs> so, I mean, that game was pretty accurate. <laughs> Do you know what happened to that? Is that? Do it get finished? It's died. Dare I ask? Okay. I mean, I think I backed that one. I think I backed that when I was a PC gamer. Yeah. Yeah, it had some promise, but the development team were extremely po-faced and seemed to have no sense of humor whatsoever mm. and didn't really seem to get what they were going for. So, I don't know, it felt kind of inevitable. I feel like it's one of two fantasy games that has a title that kind of sounds negative. Like, Sweet Genera sounds like something generic. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's there's one that went really deep on, like, heraldic symbols and generating those in a kind of dwarf fortressy way and i can't remember what its name was but it's something that also sounds kind of negative <laughs> sweet mediocrity <laughs> next up paul writes and this is a total bait but we're going to fall for it hi great bars hearing tom mention his love of adjacency bonuses in the last episode got me thinking about physical games like magic where this comes into play this led me to wondering, are there any board and or card games that you regularly play or have particular affinity for? You cover tabletop games on Miniatures Monthly, so I'm thinking uh, about ones with more cardboard and less plastic. Thanks, as always, for the excellent pod. Paul from Australia. Did someone say excuse to talk about tabletop games? <laughs> uh, let's come out with Cosmic Encounter. It's oh, yeah. probably my favourite game. Uh, it's a game about... Uh, uh, several different alien races trying to uh, set up colonies on their opponent systems but the key thing is that each of them is an alien uh, out of a deck of about a hundred some crazy amount which uh, allows them to cheat in a very interesting way <laughs> just entirely breaking the rules uh, yeah. like my favorites are uh, i think uh, the machine which is uh, like a self-replicating alien that if it launches a successful attack, it just keeps to gets to keep going and going and going and going. Huh. I don't uh, another one is the Filch or the Thief or something like that, which uh, enables the player playing them to steal from the draw deck. <laughs> and they have a special rule, which is if they are ever caught, uh, the Thief must return uh, what they stole. 
but the draw deck gets slightly closer to them. <laughs> I love that. I love the thief in, in Cosmic here. I remember playing uh, a game of this where uh, I can't remember which round it was, but one of us was the mirror and the other one was the inverter or something between me and Alex. And so the mirror means that when you reveal what value you had for combat strength, you get to swap the dodg- digits. So if it's zero one, you can change that to ten. Mm. And if it's ten, you can change it to zero one. And then uh I think that might have been Alex's power and I was the inverter, which is just I uh, my power is the lowest figure wins, not the highest figure. And the problem is both of you have to decide whether you're going to apply your power or not before you <laughs> reveal. So you both have to figure out like either of us can make this go either way. But if we both do it, we end up going the conventional way. And we both have an we also have our own ideas of like who has the greater military strength because you also enlist your allies to help with you. Um and yeah, it was a it was a great mind game. I think I came out on top on that one. But then I had another one where I, I had the most amazing the, probably the most overpowered card in the game which is um, everyone who ever dies is part of my army <laughs> like, every ship that's ever lost goes into the void I own all the ships in the void I am the void master I'm just like I have this fucking game locked up and then Pip won because she had the card that says you swap your role with whoever you like <laughs> she just took my role like, oh, fuck. yeah that's a great game actually I haven't played Cosmic Ages mm. Uh, on the kind of other end of the spectrum, there's Tales of Arabian Nights, mm. which is essentially a choose-your-own-adventure that you play between uh, several people. It's uh, It generates amazing stories, and if you go into it expecting like a story generator, it's fabulous. If you're the kind of player who doesn't mind... Uh, being like ending the game having been in jail for the entire time and uh, contracting several contagious diseases and possibly <laughs> being turned into an ape that's fine uh if you want to troll a very competitive player who sees all games as something that you win it's fabulous as well <laughs> i'd like to give a shout out to fury of dracula the only game that successfully made Ticket of R- Ticket to Ride a kind of com- a- asymmetric monster <laughs> hunting uh, scary experience where it's a game where you um, hunt Dracula as he attempts to run around Europe um, being Dracula and you do this through your mastery of the train system that um, Dracula cannot use and will not use. <laughs> I love that as a rule. <laughs> Dracula can't use trains and if he, he gets a little bit more poorly every square he spends on the ocean. <laughs> Uh, That's a great game. my pick is Time Barons which is a game that uh, designed by John Perry and Derek Yu Derek mm. Yu is a name you might remember from Splunky um, and it's a card game where you sort of build uh, it's a bit of Age of Empires kind of thing where you uh, you place down things like a church or a temple or a, um, a castle but you can also that's the thing that costs you actions and after you build those things they stick around and they give you some permanent benefit but you could also spend those actions to upgrade from the medieval era to World War II era. Mm. And in World War II era, you could build a barracks and you could build a, um, artillery and you could build that kind of stuff. And then in that area, you could spend some actions to upgrade to the modern era. And from modern era, you could spend some actions to upgrade to the, the future era. And so it's about like, you always have a choice between do I want to play a card that actually like attacks the enemy right now, just does like three damage to one of their buildings, or do I want to build a building myself, or do I want to tech up so the buildings I can build in future are better or do I want to draw a card which is going to get me more options at the tech level I'm already at 
So maybe the thing you want to do is like invest a whole lot of actions into getting up to a good tech level, then spending all your actions on drawing cards and then building. And that's really good, but it's taking you a long time to get your shit set up. Mm -hmm. And if the other person is just firing catapults at you that whole time, you're losing, you know, what few buildings you have. And the balance of that is really cool. Um, and it's got this really, it got a few neat little like kind of twists on that, which is the number of actions it costs you to upgrade is the tech level you're currently on. So tech level one only costs one action. Wait, no, it's, sorry, it's the tech level you're upgrading to. So at tech level one, it costs you two because you're upgrading to tech level two. And at, uh, to get to the modern era, it costs you three from there. Um, but tech level four, it costs you four actions, but you don't have four actions. You only get three actions. Mm. So there's no way to do it unless you have, you've already built something and gives you some kind of extra actions. And there are ways to do that where like, oh yeah, I just have a building that gives me one extra action every single turn forever. Or there's ways like I'm sacrificed. I'm going to blow up my temple to get me extra actions. It's going to kill three of my people to get me extra <laughs> actions. So I get to the future era and now I'm firing a doomsday laser at your church. <laughs> and, uh, the doomsday laser actually is kind of infamous for it. It's a tech four thing. It does something like six damage every shot, which just annihilates every single building in the game full mm. stop. Um, but it's infamous for never firing because <laughs> you have to get to tech four, then you have to build it, then you have to staff it, and then you get to fire. And if the other person hasn't beaten you by then, <laughs> you're already losing. It's got that great um, kind of anachronistic thing that you sometimes get in uh, generation-spanning games where your AI-run uh chapel is pumping out people <laughs> yes your advanced civilization yeah so there are attachment cards and those upgrade things sometimes it just like adds one extra hit or two extra hit points to it or something or or repairs all damage to it but then there's yeah the i think it's like nanobots mean that can activate a second time for free mm. but there's no restriction on what you place it on so those go on a catapult <laughs> <laughs> again just the tricked out catapult doing donuts in a car park. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The next question uh, comes from Worried, who writes, Dear Crate and Crowbar, I'm worried. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I paid Microsoft £1 for the Xbox Game Pass on PC. Next month, I'll be paying them £4. For the price of a cup of tea, I've finished Void Bastards, a full game of Imperator, Astroneers, Bomber Command, and Shadow Tactics, as well as befuddling myself with Opus Magnum. In the next few months, I'll be playing Metro Exodus, We Happy Few, and Tacoma. Also, I'll be getting access to the Outer Worlds. Outer Worlds, not Outer Wilds, I believe. Hmm. Because Microsoft own Obsidian huh. now. I think Outer Worlds was also an Xbox Pass game, right? Maybe. No, Outer it's on Worlds Xbox. It's on Epic, isn't it? So probably not. But I think both. Oh, I think on, on PC is Epic exclusive. I think they're talking about Outer Worlds this time. In a few months, which, at which point I will have paid roughly £25, which is probably less than Outer Worlds will retail for. Can this be profitable? Can this be a profitable method of delivering games for anyone involved? Is this continuing to devalue games? Has anyone ever really finished a Zactronics puzzle game? You're sincerely worried. <laughs> I'm worried about this too, because uh, Humble Monthly uh, is already a set of games that, like, I look at what they're offering and it's just, why would you buy a game if you have all these? <laughs> if you're getting that, like, it's sort of uh, four or five games a month, but they're fucking major things that were recently released, you know, released in the last six months. Um, and to some extent, it also kind of like takes away that the pressure of like having to go hunting for stuff. It's yeah, just like, they're, these, they're, they're all choices. good. Just play all these things. Like mm -hmm. you won't like all of them, but, but there's good stuff here for sure. And, you know, at worst, maybe you get one game you like this month and then you get two games you like next month and three games. You like, and, 
yeah, it scares me because I'm like, why will people going to buy my thing? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I can sell my game to Humble, but the the return on that is not as good as as what we currently get from selling it for free. Uh, so, sorry, selling it freely on Steam, and uh, that's the beginning of a huge trend that you know now Microsoft and Epic and uh, everyone is getting on. So the short answer is, I don't have any reassuring words for you <laughs> it scares me too yeah. i mean on the plus side the other way to look at it is like well i'm an established indie who's already had success and i'm doing fine uh the people this helps are to some extent there, there, there's a lot of people who are getting deals from this who would not have great prospects right. just yeah. selling on the open market in a you know totally flooded marketplace there's now this is a time i've never seen a time where there's more money going around to indies just people paying lump sums to indies to say we want your game exclusive to our platform because we want to make a platform look good and your game looks good and we we think it's cool um and a lot of those people you know that that's always been true with publishers you know if a publisher is sure you'll they'll make more money than it costs them then of course they'll do it but the environment we have now is there's a lot of people like you know, there's there's prestige purchases. There's there's right. games you'll buy because they just look cool and they make your platform look cool and it, it being exclusive to your platform is a big deal, more so than the sales. So they'll pay it over the odds. And so it's it's a better environment than there's ever been for, for a certain class of developer to get their foot off the ground and get some mm. money and get something right. going. I have a couple of friends who get a lot out of PlayStation Plus. Is it the subscription that gets yeah. you free games? And I've been delighted that they've been exposed to a bunch of high quality indie games uh but i'm not sure that translates into them going off and like searching for those developers and buying their next projects i think it's just a stream of things that they get for free right Mm. it does feel like though this system raises the floor for indies but lowers the ceiling (laughs) if that Mm. makes sense like it feels less likely that you know less expensive games would be wildly successful in a world where the relative value of four pounds, five pounds, 10 pounds is so different. Um, but, but yeah, like, as you say, Tom, it feels less likely as well that a product, a project could be worked on to a certain level of polish and quality and simply drop off the face of the earth completely, which has always been a risk. Mm. So yeah, like, it's yeah, it's tough. I mean, and it's also a response to just how much people money people have to spend on entertainment, right? <laughs> like, and how many risks they're willing to take in doing so. Like, if you can spend a small amount to get a big bag of games every month, then I can understand why that's more appealing. Like, not just price, not notwithstanding, like mm. you know the the ongoing importance of Steam sales and the kind of like collective psyche seems to attest to the fact that discounts are still the kind of you know access to games is also primarily important in terms of what storefronts people choose to use and and so on and that just a bit of existential terror for every indie in the room yeah (laughs) yeah but you know that's that's capitalism. <laughs> That's what all the people say. That's the thing that uh, Agent Forty Seven would say as she, as she, the banker plummets out of the. <laughs> well, there you have it. <laughs> if you looked at the time, that was late capitalism. <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> oh, we got there. Um, the <laughs> um, 
that's all the questions we have time for. If you'd like to send us a question for future episode, email address is questions at creightoncrowbar.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at creightoncrowbar. Uh, we have a Discord link for which is on our website, creightoncrowbar.com, which is where you also find show notes, YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash creightoncrowbar, Patreon. Thanks if you back us on Patreon. Make all of this possible. Patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar that's gone relatively smoothly so let's fuck up our twitter handles <laughs> i'm on twitter at c thurston that's c-t-h-u-r-s-t-e-n john i'm j-o-h-n underscore a double r i might post something at some point who knows <laughs> i sometimes do once a month so tom uh, i am pentanac p-e-n-t-a-d-a-c-t lovely wow what, what an outro. <laughs> so smooth. It's Alex's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Can't spell rotation. Thanks for listening.